This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Friday to you. You made it. You finally did it. Hey, uh, joined by uh, Terry South and, of course, Jeffrey Liam Simpson, the th- the, the slim and lean version of Jeffrey Liam Simpson. We got a yes. Wow. He weighed in officially, I guess. We have a new audience. Yeah. No, they're huge. Yeah. <laughs> this is a big this is a wow. big audience. They don't, they don't seem to want to stop either. It reminds me of uh, President Obama's one of his addresses. USA. Yeah. You, oh, sorry. Sorry about that. You sure it wasn't President Trump? Oh, maybe, yeah. 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 Um, so Although that one's 15 minutes long. That one was the one we just played? No, the Oh, President, President Trump's, Trump's yeah. yeah. He had a huge turnout at his inaugural address. Did you hear about that? Multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> well, congrats, Jeffrey. It's official. You you won the bet. You won. You beat yourself in the I weight did. loss I did. I smoked program. myself. You smoked it. That's cool. Hmm. You look great. You're doing great. Thank you. By the way, let's can we make a rule um, hmm. not to open a marker <laughs> in the studio? So we we are in a tightly sealed box, and I opened a marker, and now the whole room. I mean, I feel great. What kind of is it? A whiteboard marker? It's a whiteboard. Usually, marker. those don't smell too bad. Mm. Why do we have those in here? You see this? We don't even have a whiteboard. I know. Oh no, we have the little whiteboard. But here's the deal. So I don't know. I just feel lightheaded. I feel. You usually use a highlighter. I do. There's no highlighter at hand. No. I re- but so the first so thing I you can reach for is the whiteboard marker, and then you start <sighs> marking it, and all of a sudden we're all like feeling the effects of the fumes. Do you remember the in the old days when you had markers that smelled like grapes? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. They still have them. I yeah. have Lifesaver markers. <gasps> Those were good. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh. But, you know, then you'd like have – you always could tell the kid that was sniffing them because right. he had like purple rings around his nose. Right. Yeah. You remember those uh, different scented glues? No. That you sniffed? Uh-uh. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tell us about them. They make you a little lightheaded. Yeah. I'm sure they do. Just a little bit. I've had a lot lightheaded. Hey, today we're going to be talking about uh, is education still – is it still something we want to push? It's mm. really expensive. A lot of kids say they can't get jobs. So is it really the – is it the gateway to make more money? I thought you meant elementary school kids. Yeah, uh, let's not send those kids anymore. Because all those kids are smoking, or uh, they're all they're all sniffing glue, glue, yeah. and markers, and markers. So that grape scented glue, Woo. yeah, that wasn't grape scented, <laughs> my friend. That's just paste. But I mean, you have uh, like you talked about how your son has been able to develop some skills yeah. by simply watching it on YouTube and then putting those skills into practice. And so, do you need school to well, teach you that? We were just talking know. about it. So he he's on an LDS mission. He'll be home in about four or five months. Five months, I think. Hmm. And in the end, should he go to school? Well, it's his choice, but he probably won't. And he's like the first child not to. But he's like, yeah. I'll just just edit video, make videos. Now, here's the key. He does have technical experience and a lot of technical skills. And so what we're finding out is maybe colleges aren't aren't producing the skills that the people need. And so we'll talk to an expert about 
do, should they still go to school? And the answer is probably statistically yes. And they also need skills. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. Oh, hmm. we're back to that. He's still sniffing glue. But isn't there an argument to be made that you can learn things beyond, say, your what skill you need for a job in college when it comes yeah. to reasoning, decision making? Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of benefits to that. How many students have we had though that have degrees in journalism? Yeah. And they've spent four years getting them, and then they leave, and they don't do any journalism. They all go do social media. Right here. Except the social media part's not true. Yeah. But yeah. then I came back. Well, look what you're doing. I'm back. Yeah. I mean, that explains everything. Like, you're – yeah. But then the glue thing still comes up. Maybe that <laughs> explains some of that. But every one of our producers that have left, they were like – most of them were – communication majors, mm-hmm. and yet every one of them is not not working in journalism. They're working in social media. So wouldn't it make more sense that they just take classes here in social media right? and get really adv- – and learn social media marketing or whatever, learn other skills, but the universities maybe aren't geared to do that yet. So we're at this weird phase where people right. are like, I'm not going to pay $30,000, $40,000 in student loans to have a degree that's not going to get me anything. So many are saying, I'm not going to go to school. Hmm. It's a good point. But the research still shows the money is in being educated. You're going to have more of a likelihood of making more money if you so There's still value in that degree. Yeah. Versus not. Especially if the degree now, is, is that, in a technical field. Is that a thought process by the people hiring, the people that yeah, are managing? Probably. They look at – they value that more even though maybe the value isn't there as – well, Much as it was in the past. Well, and is it? It used to be the degree is what mattered. Like if you had to weigh two people that had equal, mm-hmm. you know, experience, but the the degree, I guess, would tip it. Now it's maybe just your portfolio. So if you bring in a portfolio of incredible technical stuff and and achievement, maybe they have an advantage. It's just what you've done. Mm. And the funny thing is, like my son has learned to do all of this stuff with no school, all online. All the all of the answers of how to do it is it's all online. <laughs> And he gets it one way or another. This will be interesting to see what this guest has to say because you've had another guest on the show that has basically said, you don't need an education. Yeah. You don't need to go to college. You don't need a degree. Don't worry about it. Yeah. It's not a big deal. It, and it's it's scary as a parent because, of course, you want him to go to school. Like, But do you want him to go to school to just to get a, a well-rounded – Life, but shouldn't they already have the well-rounded life? Like, shouldn't your high school be where you're doing all your general eds? My son right now is a senior in high school and is about to. It drives me crazy. He's got the easiest year of his life. I mean, it's hard, lots of stuff, but it's pretty easy. And I'm thinking we're wasting a year. Why are we not doing your general ed right now mm-hmm. and getting all of your general ed done? So when you get to college, all we have to pay for is the degree. He's like, no, that's that's a lot of work, Dad. Now, there are some schools where you can get college credit. Yeah, when I was a senior in high school, I took my pottery class. <laughs> I, I had a class where um, they called it technology, but it essentially was they were trying to teach you a skill through a video game. And so the kids just sort of figured out how to cheat at the video game. Yeah. That's how you pass the oh, class. Oh, cheating one-on-one. Right. right. So I, I, t- that. I took that two semesters because they said you can only take it once. And I just went, can I take this again? They went, yeah, sure. Sure. So you got really, you got really. Good I mean, there cheating. was some AutoCAD type thing. You're you're programming some robots and things. But I did it the semester before, so I just did it again. I was done in like three weeks. Oh, it sounds like That's you were awesome. cheating. And then I just went and played SimCity, which was the one of the games. Wow! Yeah. I just had a photography class that uh, if you weren't working on a project, 
You were just sitting in front of the TV watching a movie. Hmm. It's fantastic. Although I don't think that teacher should have shown uh, Freddy Krueger movies. No, I totally agree. (laughs) By the way, uh, I guess this shows you maybe what's going on with America. We have just in this room. I mean, the younger generation in this room. Right. One learned to cheat video games. Well, I learned that just at home. It's on the, well, yeah, inter- but, it's like, on the internet. But then you perfected it. Going we, to well, we learned on the internet, went to school, and just applied what we learned. See, cheating. the computer taught us, and we applied yeah. those skills. And then that's where you got into movies. Um, no, I was already into movies. Yeah. That's where I was exposed to some movies maybe I shouldn't have seen. Oh. Well. Good. <laughs> it's interesting. We're learning a lot on the show today. Uh, Irma continues to not only ruin a name, but batter the Caribbean. So we'll get to headlines about that. We got a lot to cover today. So much, and it's Friday, so we've got, we probably ought to clean house on some other stories, do some empty news. Plus, uh, you know, in the end, it's Friday, so we all walk away and just veg all weekend because it's football weekend. Well, I have a lot of yard work to do. Yes, yeah, so do I. Yeah. Me too. So. so I guess we won't veg. I'll figure it out, but I'm going to get you know plenty no, no. of way TV in. To, to way to bring it that. down. Way yeah. to bring it down. Just trying to help. Mm-hmm. Trying to help. Okay, let's get to the headlines then, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? Hurricane Irma barreling towards Florida was downgraded to a Category 4 storm early this morning. Winds decreased to a still powerful 155 miles per hour. Now, apparently the barrier between a 4 and a 5 is 157. Wow. So, you know. 157 miles mile per an hour, hour winds. You, if you're over that, you're a Category 5. Boy, you're you know below what that it, would do to four. your hair? <laughs> and buildings. and <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, uh, the fluctuations are likely during the next few days before the hurricane is expected to make landfall in the continental U.S. on Sunday. Meanwhile, the Texas-sized storm track shifted west and northwest, and experts say it's likely to hit Florida dead on. So, so the models they're, they're going with, it's just right up the center right of Florida. Up, so, and it will literally span the entire state. Pretty much every major city, every major city in, in Florida is going to feel this as it moves north. Yeah, in fact, isn't the, the governor's like telling people on both sides of, yeah. the, of, the, of the, state. the state to evacuate? Get out. Get out. Go. No matter where you live, get out. Uh, and so it's going to travel towards the Midwest from Georgia and Alabama. So it's going to kind of curve a little bit and maybe hook uh. Uh, so. And even even if it's even it's down if it's downgraded to a three, which I guess happens when it hits landfall, yes. it's a monster storm still. Right, it'll ah. still be dangerous, bring a lot of rain. So they're telling everyone, get out, get out now. Your window is closing. Windows almost closed. A lot of windows. A lot of well, well there in, won't be windows anymore. Yeah. One thing to watch Days. in downtown Miami, there's all these cranes. They're building you know, high rise oh, no. buildings, and so they've tried, tried to secure them. Some of the cranes are just going to let spin. What? I know. Can't you just bring it down? Like, just bring down the I don't know how quickly you can bring down these cranes that help build skyscrapers. Oh, They're boy. huge. So oh, yeah. That'll oh, be those, something. Yeah, no, yeah. those are going to... Oh, and they boy. got, you know, 50, 60 uh, level or I floor buildings. I hope the guy gets so out of it. We'll see what happens. In a closed-door interview Thursday, Donald Trump Jr. told Senate Judiciary Committee investigators that he met with a Kremlin-connected Russian lawyer during the presidential campaign because he felt, quote, it was important to learn about Hillary Clinton's fitness to be president. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't they know enough by her cough? I don't know. To the extent they had information concerning the fitness, character, or qualifications of a presidential candidate, I believe that I should at least hear them out. Depending on what, if any, information they had, 
I could then consult with counsel to make an informed decision as to whether to give it further consideration, Trump Jr. said, per a copy of a statement obtained by the New York Times. Hold it. I thought we weren't talking to the Russians at all. I thought there was no interaction. What's what Is they this said? Russia thing still going on? Oh yeah, yeah. It's there's, Russia's there's still four, there. There's four investigations going on. Oh, I thought these were all done. I didn't. No. I didn't think they had talked to any Russians. Trump Jr. told congressional investigators that he was at first unsure about accepting the meeting, and the New York Times noted that his intent to seek legal counsel afterwards suggested he knew or at least suspected that the meeting raised a thorny legal issue. Mm. So here we is go. Is it Trump Jr.'s job to? investigate the fitness of the presidential candidate of his father. Oh, sure. Is that no, his wrong. job? Well, that's always what the first son does. So that's a, okay. It yeah. just seemed have odd. Have you not read the Bible? <laughs> no. It's no, in the no. Bible. I haven't missed that part. I guess. Yeah. The, the first son, the, the – what do they call him? The alpha male, first child's male. Birthright. Birthright yeah. named hmm. boy always investigates the enemy. Okay. That's well. not too far off because the first one usually gets the shaft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You lose out on the birthright. You don't want it for a mess of pottage. Yeah. <laughs> Always go for the birthright. Yeah. Uh, in other news, a major consumer credit reporting agency, Equifax, said Thursday oh, yeah. that 143 Equifax. million U.S. customers were affected by a data breach. That's 44% of the country. Mercy. Yeah. The and by the way, huge. Equifax. This is like so. This is a credit bureau. Yeah, there's Equifax, it, Experion, and uh, TransUnion. Those are the three big ones. These are the ones that you can't get credit without these people checking your information. And now that information has been social hijacked. security numbers, birth dates, credit card numbers. Thanks, Equifax. Hackers could now have access to all this information: driver's license numbers, other sensitive info. Equifax said more than two hundred thousand people had their birth dates and credit card numbers stolen. Mm-hmm. The agency added that the hackers may have gained access to its computer systems between mid-May and July, though it found no evidence that its main consumer or commercial credit reporting databases were impacted. Mm. Or impacted. The breach was discovered. July 29th, NBC News reported later Thursday that the SEC, this uh, filing showing that three Equifax executives sold their shares in the company just days after the breach was detected. The company says the timing of the sale was coincidental. Mm -hmm. There needs to be an investigation. See, I'm okay with that. But if these hackers release one more episode of Game of Thrones. No, 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 no. Different hackers. Those are different. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Pretty sure that they're after different things. Yeah, it's different. And finally, um, back in August, news broke of that homeowners in the ultra-wealthy Presidio Terrace in San Francisco, which is an O-shaped private street in the neighborhood of of the same name, had somehow managed to lose ownership of the street. Remember that story? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Are city, they charging now? The city auctioned off the street out right. in front of all these mega mansions. <laughs> so it's basically it – was, it was the access street and, and the place where you would park. And There's the, a lot of parking there. Right. And the couple that purchased it, they were thinking about, nah, do we charge parking to these millionaires who have these huge houses? So they, if they want to park in front of their street, they have to buy access. Uh, angry members of the exclusive cul-de-sac homeowners association promised they would appeal to the city's uh, the city's auction of the the street, which the city tax collector carried out after a minuscule uh, annual tax on the privately owned and maintained sidewalks, asphalt, and parking spaces went unpaid for decades. I believe it was fourteen dollars a month. Yeah. So they weren't paying it. So it, it, he just what, what was the total sum that they they had to come in and only pay like ten thousand dollars? Something like they that. Yeah. The street. 
for for it was in like, San Francisco. It was like forty years. No one had paid this. Oh man, that's right? like their eating out bill for the month. Yeah, too. so <laughs> they put her up for auction, and it was so. And sure enough, the board of supervisors responded to complaints on Tuesday by scheduling a November hearing to decide whether or not the sale was appropriate. The board has the power to undo the sale. Right now, no, they say the plan of giving interested parties a chance to plead their cases. So they're just trying to give everyone a chance to just air their grievances. No word on if they want to change this or not. It says the San Francisco Chronicle reporter a few weeks ago that almost this exact same scenario played out some 40 years ago. At that time, the state rather than the city that uh, repossessed the roundabout. So these people, 40 years ago, the people living there didn't pay this tax. Did we not learn... And so the street was ago. taken. So as the it says, sins of the fathers. That timeline means that no sooner did the residents of Presidio Terrace get their street back that they almost immediately resumed not paying taxes on it. Shame, shame, shame. Everybody knows your name. So why? I got an idea. Yeah. Why don't they quit petitioning, quit complaining, and just buy the property? Right. As the citizens. Sure. And then they own it. Well, I don't know if you can actually purchase the street. It's just, but they, they, why don't they buy out the tax debt that they all were responsible for? That was auctioned off. It's too uh, late. This other guy now oh, owns it. Too late. So that's the. Oh, but I thought that's what he was doing was re-auctioning it. No, no, no. Um, he, mm-hmm. He's sitting there holding the the, the property. Yeah. And the, the, the people living there are complaining to the city that they didn't have an opportunity to comment before the sale. Yeah, well, and and the city's like, there's no provision that says we must let you comment before the sale, but we're going to let you anyways. There you go. You know, probably because they donate to political campaigns and they want that money still. You know what they'll do? They just need to turn back to the Bible, get a third party to make a decision, oh. and he will say, we will cut the street in half. Yeah, if they would just cut the street in half, and then right. whoever really cares for the street will step forward. Will step forward and say, "Don't, please, do not harm the street." Exactly. That's See? a beautiful answer. Problem to solved. A very complicated problem. <laughs> Many times you can just go right back to the Bible and make it happen. Ah, interesting stuff, folks. Up next, we're going to be talking about uh, if you want a job, do you still need to go get a, a degree, an education? Well, the research actually says yes, but it might be important to know where the jobs are and get the education that actually applies to the job, right? Maybe the degree isn't everything it's cracked up to be. We'll continue the discussion up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Recently, we have seen reports and news claiming that college graduates don't have as many benefits as they used to. Some reports have gone so far as to say that college education is not of any value at all. With college tuition climbing, many students are beginning to get discouraged from continuing their education after high school. But should those students stick with it? Should we as parents encourage our children to go to college? Well, who better to help us than uh, Sean M. Doherty? He's an assistant professor of education policy and leadership at the at the Neig School of Education and an affiliated faculty member in the Department of Public Policy at the University of Connecticut. Sean, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. This is, I mean, I see it with my own kids. They're they're questioning the the I, I guess really the relevancy of education in today's uh, in today's economy. But uh, let, let's kind of sort through it because we always say should our should does education matter? And you would say I guess statistically 
if you're educated, you have a higher likelihood of making more money. Is that accurate in the research? That's right. I mean, there's uh, probably no single stronger conclusion about preparation for the workforce over the last, you know, 100 years that folks have studied. Uh, and that has changed over time exactly what credential has the biggest payoff. Uh, but, but certainly, uh, on, on average, as you say, statistically, right, we can come up with plenty of individual cases where we see that that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, we can see Bill Gates and others who didn't complete a college degree and went on to be very successful in business. Uh, but but on, but on average, for, for most folks, education has, has been the best investment over time. Why are people questioning it? What, what do you see in, in the work you've done that's leading people to question so much of it, the sure. need for and education? There's, there's decent re- reason to question, I think, right now in particular because, as you mentioned in the lead-in, that uh, college debt levels have been increasing substantially. And along with that, also in the news has been that folks aren't necessarily earning enough money right out of college to pay that debt back at the rate that's been expected. Um, and, and this is a part of the story that, you know, again, folks who, who've studied this closely still come out and say, on average, you know, college is a good investment. But uh, there is increasing evidence that the amount of debt that folks are taking on to achieve a college degree uh, can be debilitating. The, the bigger challenge, actually, is for folks who start a college degree, take on debt, and then don't complete the degree. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what they then get is the, you know, the, the downside of the debt without the, the kind of labor market signal or without the benefit you know, in the, uh, when they try to go for a job of, of showing that bachelor's degree. And that's happening more and more today, right, where they do get started. I mean, then really, they're kind of maybe – every student seems to be struggling, and then – Something happens, they're already in debt, and they don't finish the degree, and that you're saying that really just sets them up for big problems. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, for a long time now, it's been true that, uh, you know, plenty of folks who start a college degree don't finish that degree, whether it's a two-year or a four-year degree. But, I mean, that's something that's been common for some time. What has become more common, though wasn't in the past, is the, the level of debt that goes along with the folks who have some college but no degree. Uh, and, and that is likely attached partially to the increase in the cost of attending uh, college, uh, especially four-year college price tags have been climbing uh, faster than the rate of in- inflation for some time. Um, and that's likely part, part of the explanation for, for how and why that's happening. What overall, so what, what uh, and I don't know if you know all the numbers, but what percentage of people just only get a high school diploma, and what what are the expectations financially for them? And then what percent move on and get a and and either drop out of college or finish their college degree? Good question. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get the numbers wrong off the top of my head, but you know, it's historically been about one in three uh, American adults have uh, at least a bachelor's degree or higher. That number has been climbing, so it's, I believe, somewhere in the middle to upper 30s at this point, uh, though the variation is pretty substantial depending on where you are in the country, um, which would then put you know, the bulk of, I guess, the rest of the folks at, at, at just a, a college or high school degree or lower. Right now, our, our high school graduation uh, rate is about 80% nationally, so only one in five, again, on average, uh, are not getting a high school diploma 
Um, and, and so that would leave, I guess, like another 40 to 50 percent with, with just a, a bachelor's or sorry, just a high school diploma. Mm. And um, but yeah, the, the, the problem is, is that the, the wages you can earn, expect to earn with just a high school diploma compared to what you can earn with a college degree. The gap between those two uh, you know, wage expectations has been growing over time. And so. Whereas. Uh, from the middle part of the 20th century, well into the latter, you know, later parts of the 20th century, you could do okay in the, in the workforce with a with a high school diploma only. It's it's pretty tough to earn a living wage on just a high school diploma, in, in you know, especially in large cities. In yeah, the country. and and I mean, part of what I see, we're at Brigham Young University, and it's a great. Uh, there's some great education and programs here. I see a lot of our our producers that work for us. You know, they're they're in um, the communications fields or humanity fields or English or drama. And um, and I look or theater and I, I sit there and I, I see them working so hard to get their degree. And then almost every one of them goes out and gets a job that's not necessarily associated exactly with what they were studying. They might get a social media internship or job um, is so are the universities really lined up to get the degrees that people need to make money in the world? Or are the universities still trying to catch up? Well, so th- this is a debate that's been running at least for a century about kind of what the purpose of education is. And, and, and that purpose has been less clear in higher education, even maybe than in kind of K-12. Um, you know, the, the debate between the benefits of a, a liberal arts education and generalized learning skills where you focus on the ability to read critically, to think critically, and to write well and communicate well. Uh, you know, those skills are kind of universally important in the, in the workforce. Uh, and to some extent, employers report them not being in, in high enough supply. So, you know, on the one hand, studying liberal arts and getting a college degree and generalized knowledge can be valuable. And, and most folks do end up working in some field other than, you know, what they, what was their major in college if they have a college degree. That said, there is plenty of evidence that there are unfilled jobs in, in more technically oriented careers that do require some specialized knowledge. Um, and, you know, and, and I, there's conflicting reports on, on kind of the extent to which it's a function of people not taking the right degrees in college or not mm. studying the right programs. But we do know it is possible in two and four year colleges to pursue some of these pathways. And, and that pursuit of them, at least over the last 20 years, hasn't been as highly marketed. Uh, folks have been thinking more squarely about four year degrees and, and pushing uh, kind of universal college pursuit. And, and not thinking necessarily as, as vocationally, thinking about the alignment between what folks are studying and, and what job they're likely to get. Interesting. Is there is there a better correlation with um, getting the four-year degree, kind of the institutional four-year degree idea? Do, do they tend to make more money or those that are just more targeted specifically to, you know, their, their labor, their job training? So – on on average, over the last you know thirty to fifty years, getting a, a four year degree period, kind of regardless of what it is, has had a, a pretty high payoff, mm. you know, reward in the marketplace. Um, that said, we know there's a lot of variation in how much you're likely to make right out of college, and we know that a lot of that variation is explained by what you studied or what uh, or you know or what field you get hired into after college. The tr- there's some trade-offs 
you know, the, the more focused, the more specific the skills you're acquiring in, in higher education, the more, the, the more, I guess, open you are, the, the more risk you take on that if your job changes in the future, that you'll have to get retrained or that your knowledge will be less valuable, right? If, so, for instance, if you were a manufacturer in the 1970s and you had the skills to manufacture automobiles, uh, your skills were in high demand, they were well compensated. But, but now for folks who've been displaced by the loss of those jobs, you know, retraining and reentering the workforce has, has been a challenge. So that's kind of the classical trade-off between specific skills and maybe getting a higher wage in the short term versus the risk of over the longer term having to do, you know, retraining. Mm. Is when you look at it, because I look at it as an ex-gen, um, I value education. I, I, I went through the process. I see, I think it builds so much more than even just skills, right? It builds you know, confidence, it shows the ability to get to be a finisher or whatever. But I also look at the millennials that also have a different view of institutions like education and religion. And do you see this, this, uh, this maybe favoritism, this benefiting of education changing as other generations are coming up that don't or maybe don't value it as much? Certainly, I mean, being, being an academic, I'm certainly open to the possibility. You know, there have been been large kind of sea changes in in, in lots of things over over time. It wouldn't shock me if if we're going to witness some some shift in kind of how education is valued in the marketplace, or at the very least, the pathways people pursue hmm. to attain that education. So, you know, for for Gen Xers like uh, you and I, and Gen Y, maybe even you know, folks. Uh, went from high school into college, if they went and pursued a college degree, uh, and then out into the workforce, you know, I think we may see more variance on that model as folks wonder, do I know uh, at 18 what I want to be doing and why? And, and so maybe there'll be more, you know, en- entry in and out of the workforce, pursuing higher education part-time or, or more purposeful pursuit of it in a kind of tailored way, uh, maybe a little bit later into folks 20s. So, you know, I, I don't have great evidence of that. I do see people increasingly uh, considering alternative, you know, taking gap years before high school, after college, thinking about uh, work life differently. And, and so I think it's possible um, that there'll be some shifts, though I'd be shocked if, if still on average we didn't see that, you know, folks who got more education – uh, and studied fields that were in high demand didn't get the benefit um, yeah. in the workforce. And and that's let's take a break and come back and talk about that, Sean, because I, I that's what I wonder. Now there's so many other ways to get information, uh, just online courses. I have a son that has a, a lot of technical skills that he's just learned on his own, and I'd love to have your insight in that. It will is it really the skills that they have to have and the ability to show effectiveness in the skills or is it in the end the degree? Um, it's an interesting stuff. And and really, it's it's a battle that's not going away. And our children, our grandchildren are going to be questioning the value of education. And the data shows it's what brings the money statistically. Now, there's always the anomalies, right? There's the, the people that have snuck through and, and done it another way. But uh, education. Right now, the data is saying it's it's the number one way. We'll continue the journey more with Sean Doherty when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio.
Welcome back. We're talking with Sean M. Doherty, who is an assistant professor of education policy and leadership at the NIG, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, NIG School of Education, and he's also an affiliated faculty member in the Department of Public Policy at the University of Connecticut. We're talking about how in the end, uh, according to the data, getting an education, and the more education you can get, the the more income you can bring in on average. Um, so it's important. Sean Doherty, thank you again for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Matt. Thank how do you. how do you pronounce the name of your the School of Education? Uh, so I, I've been told we say the the NIAG School of Education. The NIAG. Okay, there you go. Sounds good to me. Um, all right, it's, it's it's always a topic of conversation. <laughs> Isn't that great in your own department? How do we pronounce our department? Um, so, and again, what's interesting about education is you know even though the more you have, you may not know how to even pronounce that word. <laughs> So um, talk to us about – because again, is, is it is, – it's really – when we say education, it's a term where you're using. But you're, you're really saying the more skills, the more tools, the more uh, I guess even certificates and the, in whatever you're going to do over time will increase the likelihood of making more money. That, that's right. Uh, and, and we use education as kind of a rough proxy – Right, yeah. for, for the sorts of things that you're mentioning, we think skills and training uh, and ab- ability to, to communicate, to interact with others, because typically we don't we, we know uh, we think we know a host of things that matter. Right. If we asked an employer or we just asked, you know, other human beings, you yeah. know, what's important about being a successful, well-functioning adult, we can list the things. And, and but we, we kind of we, we see those things very indirectly. Right. If you send me a resume or a letter or someone recommends you for a job, I, I need to think about, well, so what are the characteristics I care about? And, and the reason education ends up, you know, explaining so much about, you know, how much what, what people get paid in the marketplace or maybe how their income changes over time is we, we've discovered that it's a fairly good proxy, right, for, uh, for those skills. Now, we, we think about this as in two different ways. We think about, like, seeing that you have a college degree there's some there's two different ways that can have value one it can separate it can be a signal that separates you from someone else who doesn't have a bachelor's degree and maybe we think that's about persistence or other resources or other things that we think we care about um or it can be you know literally a signal of skill because matt has this bachelor's degree and sean doesn't have this bachelor's degree you know we know there are skills he acquired in in earning that degree and we're going to value those skills yeah Um, and and i guess some of it's perceived but like you you gave a really good uh you made a really good point earlier that there's always going to be the one off like Bill Gates that just quit in the middle um and still succeeded but behind his quitting right Bill Gates had thousands of hours coding he had supportive parents that were going to support him kind of either way he had all these other things going for him but for the average joe um it, it's you're saying overall it's kind of worth getting all of the well-rounded skills that you might get out of a maybe a more of a university setting or a, a even a technical training program, so that so that you can mark off as many boxes as you can in an interview. That's right, and and actually the the, the different boxes you just mentioned are, are important because you know there's the technical skill, but we get lots of other things out of formal education and training like mentorship, yeah, uh, both formal and informal. And if you're 
let's say, getting trained to be an electrician, you know, you both learn the technical skills about how to work with the electricity safety and safely and according to code. But you also learn from professionals in the field about how to conduct yourself in a workplace, how to own your own business. Um, and, and that goes the same on the, on the college side, right? Like I learned lots of things in, in, in university training, but, but some of what you learn is the informal mentorship you get from the other adults who are responsible for, for training you up. Yeah. Um, and the ability and, to and, communicate. And, yeah. Like you were saying, communication. I mean, just write like I have a, I had a journalism degree, but I ended up in uh, cells because they loved my writing. And I realized, oh, oh, okay. So it's my writing that they're after. But my degree was journalism, and I always thought I'd be a journalist. And in the end, what I got were skills of writing and communicating and being able to dissect information. That's right. That's and, cool. and, and those general skills are, are, are important because you don't know as the, at the point in time when you're doing the training what, you know, what you'll be faced with in terms of a marketplace or, or how that will change over time. And that's part of the reason in, in education and, and thinking about uh, labor economics, we, we think about both general skills that are highly transferable and specific skills that might help you gain a particular job, uh, for instance, writing. Is there, um, in your heart, would you go into debt and would you recommend the average person, maybe not one that's going to get a PhD because, I mean, that's probably different, but um, would you go into debt to get a bachelor's degree? Well, so I'd be a hypocrite if I said no, because I did take on some, some personal debt myself when I got a bachelor's degree, but I chose to go to the University of Massachusetts, which was you know, an in-state institution for me at the time and, and cost a lot less than some of the other private schools that I applied to and was admitted to. And, and, and it, I mean, I made that personal decision because I didn't think the cost associated with the debt hmm. was worth the perceived benefit, you know, of, of having that private school degree versus my University of Massachusetts degree. And, and, and I would say on average, again, uh, folks are better off taking on less debt to earn a bachelor's degree. So maybe do it over uh, time, do it over more time. Certainly, you could do it over over more time, or or make choices to attend less costly universities uh, as a way to, to hedge. Of course, you know there's some trade off if you can if you if you you know uh, can get a degree at, at at Harvard and it costs you a bit more. You know, may, maybe you could say like you think that there's some value, or you or you perceive some value in attending a particular private institution, um, and you can get great educations there. Uh, so I'm not not knocking them at, at all. It, it's just about the, the difference in the price tag on average, if you can do it less expensively or, yes, if you can be co-enrolled in college while working part time, uh, th- things to kind of defray the overall debt burden um, do give you more opportunities on the back end. Right. You don't have to take a job or, or establish a lifestyle based on your debt level. Hmm. What changes do you see coming down the road then? It seems like. There needs to be maybe some reform in education, um, maybe to, in an effort to maybe make it less expensive. Um, is that would it be better to just free tuition kind of models we've heard about? Would it be better to push more of the general ed education down into the uh, high school level, so then you're just more technical, getting more specific skill sets at college? What what do you see coming down on the educational side that might impact some of this? Well, so I have some 
uh, colleagues at, at Harvard and Berkeley who, uh, who study, I, I don't know well, but I know, I know there are folks who study uh, David Deming and Chris Walters in particular in this instance are, are studying the best way to defray the cost of college. Is it better to you know, discount the, co- the price of tuition or to give people uh, money to help reduce the costs? Um, you know, a lot, a lot of smart people are thinking about how, how to deal with this on the financial aid or, or you know, cost of attending college side. Um, I, I suspect that college prices can't continue to rise at the rate that they've been rising over the last 20 years. Um, and, and some of that w- will bring a bit of a reckoning to schools about, how, you know, how, how they operate and, and what their cost structure and revenue structure can be. Um, I, I think that having greater prominence of this concern about debt and the number of people who have high levels of debt is, is likely to start changing people's behavior. And then higher education uh, will we'll have to start re- responding to those changes in behavior, right? Mm, so maybe yes. people will have less demand for higher cost education. And, and so colleges will have to start to rein in uh, their their expectations in terms of what people can pay. Mm, it's got to, right? And it also seems like I almost just think that there's this there's this other kind of um, energy going on of people that are, f- f- you know, thinking that even the numbers showing that education is the number one way to make more money is just a way to prop up education <laughs> and educational facilities. And because, again, middle America seems to not get ahead. If, if you've got a chance to maybe go to Harvard, that might seem to make a, a, a big difference. But um, if you just go get average skills um, from an average place, does it really make a difference? I mean, still, still the, the best, most recent research evidence still suggests that it does make a difference. It does. Um, and, and, and that on average, it still will, will pay off. Um, but what it means for it to pay off may, may look different now yes. than it did 20 years ago. Um, and, and again, this is on average. We're talking about the middle the middle of the pack, right? And, right? and there may be plenty of people at the, excuse me, lower of the lower end of the distribution of benefit. Maybe fully, you know, twenty to thirty percent of the folks who are have that degree and, and have a higher level of debt, who who are not seeing the degree of payoff that they had hoped. Yeah. Well, and and then there's kind of the for-profit universities that others might feel like are gouging. And anyway, so it, it's a really complicated issue, but I appreciate the insight. Uh, Sean M. Doherty is his name and uh, assistant professor of education policy and leadership at the NEG School of Education, still in debate on that one, and an affiliated faculty member in the Department of Public Policy at the University of Connecticut. Great, great resource. And folks, I mean, in the end, it's it's about choice, right? It, it comes down to choice. It also comes down to uh, your family values and maybe your own grit, your own determination, your ability to go out and do the hard things. So, I mean, how could you argue against more information, more education, more skills? In the end, we all want that, right? We all need that. We'll continue the journey, folks, and continue talking about uh, choice. Up next, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Yes, folks. You know, it's important to get an education, right? And uh, you might not even believe this, but did you know that you also may be sneezing wrong? You just may not be sneezing the right way. 
Experts say the technique that you use is crucial to stopping the spread of deadly influenza. How's this? Get the No. That doesn't sound right? That sounds horrible. Oh. No, you're going to hurt somebody. So a deadly outbreak of flu has experts calling for a change of, of uh, you know, the rules for sneezing, sneezing habits. The current method of catch it, bin it, kill it isn't enough to contain the germs. Children, children's hygiene habits are under scrutiny with the push for more education. And uh, here's why. Listen to basically, I guess, in the end, we've got to figure out, do you, do you catch it, then throw it in the garbage and to, to eliminate it, or are there other ways to do this? University of Sydney Associate Professor Guy Eslick uh, told the Daily Telegraph, the current method of using a tissue to capture the potentially harmful spray is wrong, and a better way uh, would be to adopt the elbow sneeze. The elbow sneeze? Sneeze, yeah, you're supposed to sneeze into your, it's like doing the dab when you dab. Um, you're supposed to sneeze into the, the what do they call that, like the fold of your elbow. Yeah. It's your elbow pit, yeah. Yeah, your elbow pit. Um, and it's uh, – the benefit, I guess, of, of this is that um, children were almost were taught almost every day about sneezing into their elbow and it all comes back to public education. They're finding out those kids that sneeze into their elbow are less likely to have the virus spread through their classes mm-hmm. than those kids that sneeze into a Kleenex, blow their nose in the Kleenex. And then maybe set their Kleenex down on their desk, maybe put the Kleenex in the garbage can. So maybe don't do it right in somebody's face either. Yeah. I wouldn't do it in their face. Yeah, that's a bad one. I wouldn't try to hold the sneeze in. We all know that's just funny. Now, it what makes if, funny noises. What if I sneeze into somebody else's elbow pit? That's – or yeah, or what do you do when your elbow pit has been all used up? Then you just have to borrow someone else's elbow pit. Come here, honey. I'll let you I'm mine. short on dry spaces on my elbow pit. Well, you're not even wearing a long sleeve shirt. So if you have a cold, you ought to wear a long sleeve shirt. But the other thing is don't touch anyone's elbow now either. You never know what you're going to pick up. But the rule, don't just blow it and toss it and get rid of it that way. Use your and – don't, and don't – Wipe it on your jeans. Don't do any of the other things that you see. Just blow it in your elbow pit. Little advice from the Matt Townsend Show to help you live longer. We'll continue the journey at next hour. Stick with us. Having fun right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends, and happy Patriot Day to you as we uh, observe the National Day of Service and Remembrance for those uh, people killed on 9-11 in 2001. Man, it just seems like, what, 16 years ago. Wow. Time flies, doesn't it? Now think about all the problems. North Korea locked and loaded today. There may even be backlash on with North Korea because they're going to be sanctioned again, I guess, from well, the UN. We're, we're pushing for that, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I don't remember what Kim Jong-un said about it, but it will be a, the most painful day in the, ever in the memories of all Americans if this goes through. Well, he could stop building weapons and feed his people. Yeah. 
but you know, it's a good point. He Not wants to happen. He wants to build weapons. So. Come on, Kim Jong Un. We uh, we will be talking. Uh, maybe we'll even have some solutions for him. How to be a Stoic mm. using ancient philosophy to live a modern life. We have a, a philosopher coming on to talk about Stoicism, which has some really interesting answers and ideas for some of today's biggest problems. Maybe this guy will have an answer for Kim Jong Un, even though Kim Jong Un is deity, right? And in certain parts should, of the world, yes. Alternative facts. He should have his own answers. Hmm. Just saying. We'll get to that coming up. Plus, uh, crazy day. Of course, Irma continues to battle the um, southeast and also it's, as it moves its way up toward Georgia now. It's on the door knocking on Georgia's door. Yep. Uh, and then our, what's happening with the other storms? Are they just still lining up? There's Jose. And I think Kati is the other one. And it's supposed to be rolling into Mexico where they just had the earthquake. Yeah. I wonder what the L name is going to be. Larry. Lyman. Lawrence. Liam. I mm. bet it's Liam. There you go. <laughs> Who names their kid Liam? <laughs> My oh, neighbor. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> My neighbor. Jeff's middle name. Liam. What if it is Liam? Will you be offended? No. You love a good name, storm named after you. Yeah. I don't blame you. Uh, so we'll get to all of that fun. Plus, uh, we've got some big headlines, um, empty news headlines, actually. Hmm. So the bigness might be relative. Yeah. Yeah. It's we, Big Lee. It's Big Lee. Yeah. But it's a, it's, a, it's a big story because an Australian surfer punches a shark hmm. to escape. It's, you know, it could have died. So it did the old shark punch. I had another shark story. Ooh. From over the weekend. And Someone I, else punched? I, I, well, this one, Shark Punch, the one I had this morning that I actually like didn't have room for. There's just so much going there's, on. I, I know. There's so away. many headlines. Guy's riding on a surfboard, and um, he wasn't like straddling the surfboard. He's, he's, he, was, uh, he was off to the side or something, yeah. and the shark came through and bit the board in half. It was an 11-foot oh, white shark. I so mad. And I like, bit his hip. <gasps> Ooh. And everything. They did so, get the guy. Yeah, well, he got in, but they said if he was like laying on top of the board, he would have died. The Whoa. way that shark was moving, it would just took that board and chopped it in half. Oh boy! I'm like, wow. Hmm. Let's go surfing off the coast of Australia. Apparently, there's yeah. To, it no, seems, thank you. Seems like to me, it's, it's time like, to bring come in. Are they chumming the water before they surf? Is that the problem? No, he was just he just had a bucket of chicken and just kept eating the wings and th- throwing them into the ocean. Mm. It just seems like they're provoking this. I don't know. Yeah, you don't want to do. They're that. not, but you know, it just seems like there's a lot of attacks. Um, and as if Irma wasn't a big enough problem for Florida, apparently Florida has the worst drivers in the U.S. Again. So we'll get to that headline. Ugh. Florida, it just it's one thing after another with them. I was disappointed. I had a story of a gator farm in Orlando. It yeah. was promising that all their gators, we're, they're gonna, we're gonna keep them in their pens through this entire hurricane. Don't worry about them escaping. Oh, that's good news. Yeah. How do you keep a gator in its pen? I don't know. Sounds like a joke. How do you keep a gator in its pen? But then the storm moved past Orlando, and I haven't seen an update, so it's old news. So I had to move on. Yeah, well, apparently the gator problem was more in Houston. <clears throat> they had a they had a place in Houston because the water. Had a I mean, the gators situation. were like they were floating, a, like a foot away from the top of the fence. <laughs> Here we go. How do you keep a gator in its pen? You fill it with his chums. Yeah, that's one answer. 
Huh. You fill it with his chums. <laughs> See, it's funny no matter who says it. Well, if you have that button. Yeah. Huh? Anyway, we'll get to those headlines, but first to the real headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Georgia is bracing for impact this morning as Tropical Storm Irma moved inward over the Florida's Panhandle Coast. The northern bands of the storm have already knocked out power to 150,000 customers in southern Georgia. The uh, storm is set to leave Florida around 11 a.m. Eastern. Experts warn that the rivers throughout the state could see significant flooding from heavy downpours and the storm surge threatens its Atlantic coast. Governor Nathan Deal declared a state of emergency in all of Georgia's 159 counties on Sunday. For the first time ever, Atlanta's public transit system announced it was shut down all train and bus service Monday due to dangerous high winds. All public schools and most courts and governmental offices are also closed throughout the city. Wow. Just shut it down and shelter in place. Six million people without power. And then you watch on TV, then the power goes out. And what do you do? Then Talk to you family? I mean, come on. And you'll <laughs> only have like three hours of your phone because oh, yeah. that's only like three one-hour series shows on Netflix. You have to have your battery packs ready to go. Yeah. That, that has been entertaining for me, not being part of this. And you can kind of you know separate yourself from the human toil of it all but you can watch on snapchat all the videos people make inside the uh, hurricane well that's yeah it's kind of interesting to watch but it's what a weird way to use your electricity yeah well i mean it, it, for me it's it's something to do i can watch i can i can appreciate their work oh, absolutely and, and sometimes people running out into the hurricane force winds with their phone because well you know, and some people aren't yeah not smart like just stay indoors in other news, the FBI is reportedly investigating whether Sputnik, a government-funded news agency in Russia, is operating in the U.S. as an undeclared propaganda arm of the Kremlin. This according what? to Yahoo News. Russia's not involved in the U.S. Agents have already questioned a former White House correspondent for the news agency this month. He confirmed to Yahoo News, if the FBI determines that Sputnik is operating as such, it could be in violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which was created in 1938 written to combat the influence of Nazis in the United States Mm -hmm. during World War II. Yeah, huh. Wow. Yahoo News also reported that federal agents have had their hands on thousands of emails and documents from the news agency, which were allegedly provided by Andrew Feinberg, the former reporter who took the material before he was fired from Sputnik last spring. Feinberg told Yahoo News that he sat for questioning for more than two hours on September 1st, during which he answered questions about Sputnik's internal structure, editorial process, and funding, among other things. Huh. Sputnik. Still making history. (laughs) It was a satellite or space probe. Now it's... May or may not have had a monkey in it because they did that. Now it's a political probe. Was it that dog? I can't remember which probe it was because they sent up a dog at one point. Sputnik, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sputnik. And now that dog, he can be sent on Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, really? Really? He's on a spaceport. He's he's telepathic now. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. runs around a little little Soviet Union space Hey, I suit. think that's our th- second or third Sorry. movie reference. We got more coming up. Uh, seven people shot to death late Sunday at a Dallas Cowboy watch party inside a home in Plano, Texas, the Dallas Morning News reports. The suspect gunman was killed by police. Officer who responded to a 911 call. Two others were wounded, but few details have been released on their injuries. The newspaper reports the shooting may have been sparked by a domestic dispute. The homeowners listed in public records reportedly sought a divorce in July, so there's all, all sorts of different oh, ramifications. Um, I learned when I spent my time in Texas, when the Cowboys are on TV, you do not bother people. Yeah, you, wow. used, you used to try to knock doors and bring them the gospel. There was a, a, a visceral reaction 
Get into out of interrupting here. a Cowboys game. Well, they're watching America's team. <clears throat> Correct. And depending on whether they had an early game, if they had an early game, then like church was like you see all these church services like early day because the Cowboy game. Well, yeah. You know, I kind of think because you're trying to get out before what, the kickoff. What is the order again? Is it um, God first, uh-huh. Cowboys second, uh-huh. or Cowboys first, God second? Depends on kickoff. Well, when you're moving time. the time of church, I think the message is loud and clear. And in, and in many times, <laughs> so it's it's seen as God's team. So it's it's one <laughs> oh, of the yeah. same, right? Well, so. So the church would have like a potluck to watch the game. That was church right. for the day. They're just trying to get people out to skip church for the week because of football. So they're but trying to fight football. If you could talk a little religion, you know, at the yeah. tailgate party. Yeah, there's halftime. There's plenty of commercial breaks. You just have a blessing and, over the food. Yeah. Wow. It was really quite an interesting thing to see. It is a church. And finally, the Stephen King adaptation from uh, Warner Brothers shattered records over the weekend, earning 117 million from 4,000 locations. It. The movie It. What uh, It? What It? Not it, only it. is oh. It now the largest ever opening for a horror movie and the largest September opening of all time, the film more than doubled the earning of the previous record holders. Before this weekend, Paranormal Activity 3 had the biggest horror opening with $52 million from 2011. <laughs> the highest September debut overall was Hotel Transylvania 2 that had $48 million. Hold so, on. The ugh. biggest horror movie opening? Was... Paranormal Activity 3. Yeah, but that's... The biggest opening in general... Ever. ...was Hotel Transylvania 2, which was like, it's a cartoon. Which was also horrific. Yeah, it's a horrible movie. Why was that the biggest opening? Because they don't release movies really in September. School starting... It's kind of a dump heap. There's a lot of football happening, so people are really excited that way, and so people stay away from the theaters. Yeah. You start getting the bigger movies in October, November, December, so they put Hotel Transylvania 2, which is an Adam Sandler cartoon which my son loves but it's horrible it's a horrible movie but it it held the record (laughs) since 2015 wow so they put an actual movie out that people were interested in it made a ton of money and set all these records unbelievable but a clown i my wife and i were so close to going to a movie this weekend not that one should have seen logan lucky yeah i'm gonna go check that out now i've watched the trailer so i'm good I'm not like Terry. Like, I didn't watch the trailer 15 times and then order tickets. <laughs> well, I didn't for that movie like either. Like, three months ahead of time. Well, that's only specific masterpieces. Give me, give, me, give me one example. Anything that says Marvel on it, I'll be there. Wow. Well, not anything. Three months ahead of time. Out of their, what, 16 movies they made, there was one movie I, had, I did not see in the theater. Which one? The second Thor movie. Oh, I still haven't seen that. My son, By the way, my son was being birthed, so I was busy. Uh, I heard a story about a friend. Uh-oh, a friend? And Thor. I won't name names, Ooh. but her name's Michelle Nilsson. Okay. And we were out to dinner, and she's her husband said she was medicated because she had just had, she was sick. She had just had, oh, she just had her, like, some molar pulled or something. Right. And uh, she was high as a kite mm. on her drugs. Oh. Nice. And when they were watching Thor for some reason. Mm. And Thor came on, and she said something to the effect of, um, I want him. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so... She blames the drugs, right? Yeah. Okay. So now the husband, he's, he, he's already... Chris, as his name, is now dressing up as Thor this Halloween. So Chris has Wait. competition from Chris Helmsworth, the yeah. actor who uh-huh. plays There's Thor. something about Chris. A lot of the Chris's are... Quite the heartthrob no, he, these this, days. This Chris is a total heartthrob. But what do you do when your wife's like, I want, I want. I don't think she said, I would want him. She said, I want that. Wow. Chris Hemsworth? 
Chris or the, or Pratt. Maybe, maybe, Chris, Chris Pine. There's Chris one more Chris. Evans. Chris Evans. Captain that's America. The one. Wow. It's a lot of Chris. Chris Christie. Chris Kringle. That's a different Chris. Not necessarily. Ruth's Chris. That's a restaurant. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I want that. Which I is want weird. That. There's too many S's in that name. Yeah. Seems like you're, you're mispronouncing something. Ruth Chris. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, I don't know what you do, but we're working with him now. Okay. In private sessions. Well, you know, you, you do what you can. Keep them together, man. You know, I'm sure if he goes online, he can figure out the Chris Hemsworth workout. Mm, yeah. At least his body can look like Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. He just wears a, re- a white or a white-haired wig, right? Uh, like a blondish no, wig. That's his hair. Well, they cut it. For no, the new I'm talking. Movie. This Chris just has to wear a blonde oh. wig and then carry a hammer. Well, you can't carry any hammer. You carry the fake Thor hammer. It's with... not fake. It's real. What it's about like a just... children's mallet? You just make it out of a pool noodle. Mjolnir and... is not a fake hammer. Here well, we go. By the way, I think that's crafted... the fourth movie <clears throat> reference. It is crafted by 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 dwarves. In their minds. We call them little people. No, that's what they're called in the show. No, midgets are called little people. I'm sorry. Can I not say that? I don't think so. Sorry. Um, Thor. Yes. So I didn't see that one. You actually knew the name of his hammer? Mjolnir? Who doesn't know that name? Me. Me. Okay, well, that's his name, Mjolnir. And and on it, it says you must be worthy to wield Mjolnir. If you, if you, oh, he brother. is not Thor. His name is not Thor if he doesn't have the hammer. Isn't so what it, makes isn't your you, name Thor? His name is Odinson. Oh. So He's what, the son of Odin. What makes you worthy? Like, don't lie. Kiss your mother good night. Clean your room. Depends. Go to church. Eat when your the vegetables. Are playing. <laughs> it depends. His hammer actually gets destroyed in the next movie because he wasn't worthy. Speaking well, of not being worthy, did you hear the, that Jeff didn't set up chairs? For church this Sunday, this really? Last Sunday, that's yeah. so bad. Didn't even you set must up. set up the chairs. Yeah, because all these people show up. And you then... wouldn't be able to lift Thor's mule near deer. Mm-hmm. Hammer. Anyway, uh, Jeff, do you have any headlines for us? Give us one. Give us. Let's talk Australian surfer. I mean, this is a lucky. This is one lucky surfer in our empty news headlines. I mean, it's bad enough to be a surfer. It's it's worse though when you got a shark chasing you. Absolutely. We just had a conversation with my daughters yesterday who were asking about sharks. Are sharks real? And we said, uh yeah, they're definitely they're real. Totally real. But if you ever come across one, just start punching it in the eyes or the nose. Yeah, that's so much easier said than done. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, this surfer, uh all he all he ended up getting was a, a scratch on his back, a torn wetsuit, and teeth marks in his board. Whoa. He was attacked by a shark on Tuesday off an Australian beach. Marcel Brundler, thirty seven, estimated the shark that grabbed his board was a ten foot great white shark. What? He was surfing southwest of the Victoria State Capitol, Melbourne, and uh Mr. Bundler said he punched the shark before making his escape by catching a wave. Why I so the wave, bunk. thank goodness for that. <laughs> and then he caught a wave. Yeah. So uh, he real he said I realized fairly quick because it was more than half a meter wide with a massive dorsal fin, and it looked at me. Then it kind of dived off, came back, and circled me, and took a fair notch out of my board, circled me again. Oh. Then it got me on my wetsuit. It got me on my hip. Luckily, it's just a little scrape on my skin. Mr. Brundler said that he punched the shark, then rode a wave away. I was shouting and punching it while it attacked me. 
I was really, really lucky this wave popped up out of nowhere. Unbelievable. Saved by the wave. The wave save. The wave save. And But how do you catch a wave? It's not like getting on a bus. You have to paddle, right, and kick to catch the wave. So every time he put his arm in, he could lose an arm. See, what you need is have like a... Have some sort of a necklace that has a sharp, jagged edge to it mm-hmm. that you could use as a weapon. Well, like a shark's tooth. Yes. Just oh, grab wouldn't sh- that just, be ironic? That's why if I surf, I always oh. wear a shark's tooth hanging from my necklace. I love the irony of that. Yeah, wouldn't that be great if you could defeat the shark with its own tooth? Yeah. This is what it feels like. If you wiggle a shark tooth back and forth, they come out really easily. So just while he's opening his mouth, wiggle a tooth, get one out, and then poke him in the eye. Yeah, they come out so easily because they have about, you know, several hundreds in reserve. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> oh, that is terrifying. Well, he made it, folks. So just remember, you go for the eyes, punch a shark. Uh, or, hey, how about just don't get in the water altogether? That's my vote. Tons of fun. Tons of uh, great stories as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Whenever we worry about what to eat, how to love, or simply how to be happy, we are worrying about how to lead a good life. No goal is more elusive. In How to Be a Stoic, philosopher Massimo Pellucci offers Stoicism, the ancient philosophy that inspired the great emperor Marcus Aurelius, as the best way to attain it. Stoicism is a sensible philosophy that focuses our attention on what is possible and gives us, a, uh, gives us perspective on what is uh, unimportant. Um, and so today to talk about it is Massimo Pellucci, and we appreciate you, Massimo. Thank you for being with us today and giving us this, uh, this, this lesson on Stoicism. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So talk to us, first of all, kind of, I guess, set the table for us. What, what is Stoicism, and, and, and who are some of the Stoic philosophers that, that we would know about? So I think of Stoicism as the Western equivalent of Buddhism. The two philosophies are very similar. They, they both are concerned with uh, uh, reducing pain in your life to uh, controlling your negative emotions and developing and nurturing positive ones uh, so that you're uh, useful to the rest of, of humanity. Uh, they evolved independently. At about the same time, Stoicism started out uh, in, in ancient Athens about a couple hundred years after Buddhism started out in India. So, and, they, and they did come about under very similar sort of social and political circumstances, a lot of turmoil, really a, a time in human history that wasn't really that different from today, where, where a lot of people feel that life is complicated, it's out of control, things happen that we don't really uh, affect uh, very much, and this causes stress, and we don't know how to deal with it. Um, the basic idea of Stoicism is that, um, well, there's two basic ideas. One is the so-called dichotomy of control. Uh, this uh, notion that certain things are under your control, other things are not under your control. And you may be able to influence them, but they're ultimately not under your control. And that the best thing you can do in life to reduce your suffering and to, in fact, being more effective at living your life is to focus your attention on the things that are, in fact, under your control and essentially completely ignore the rest. Hmm. And uh, maybe we can talk about how that translates into, into practice uh, in a minute, but that's one of the fundamental ideas. The other fundamental idea is that uh, the point of human life 
is to use reason to improve social living. And the reason for that is because we're reasonable animals. We're the only animal, animals that are really capable of, of engaging in, in reason discourse. Of course, that doesn't mean we're reasonable all the time. In fact, we're probably not reasonable most of the time, but we're capable of using rationality. We're capable of using reason. And, and we are inherently social animals. We depend on other people. So whenever we do something that improves our society, our own lives actually become better. Fascinating. And it's um, some of its practitioners maybe talk about who historically who was practicing this philosophy. So the philosophy started in 300 BCE uh, with Zeno of Sajum, which is modern day Cyprus. And Zeno was a merchant. Um, he's, uh, he lost uh, almost everything he had in a, in a shipwreck. And he got to Athens, uh, you know, not knowing exactly what to do. And he, he entered into a bookshop and he started reading a book about Socrates. And he asked the, the bookseller, you know, where can I find the philosopher? And the bookseller said, well, there's one right outside the door. Just go and talk to him. And uh, Zeno did. And the, the guy in question was Cratus, a cynic philosopher. And um, Zeno started uh, studying philosophy first with Cratus and then with other people. And then eventually he started his own school which was called the Stoic, the Stoicism, because they met in a public market, which was called the Stoa Poikile, the, the painted porch, hmm. in the middle of Athens. And so Zeno was the first of the Stoics. Um, then after that, some of the most famous ones are Seneca, who was a uh, Roman senator, and he was the uh, advisor to the Emperor of Nero. Um, and then uh, Marcus Aurelius, of course, was the, the emperor philosopher in the second century in Rome. And a guy named Epictetus, uh, which is actually the main protagonist of my book, uh, Epictetus was a really fascinating uh, character. He studied out his life in um, Hierapolis, which is in modern-day western Turkey, as a slave. In fact, his name really means the one who is enslaved. Mm. And, um, and then he was bought by a new master in, uh, and brought to Rome. In fact, he was at Nero's uh, court as well, just like Seneca. Uh, eventually, since he was a bright guy, he was freed um, by, by his master. He was given freedom, and he started uh, teaching philosophy. Uh, eventually, he was also exiled by the emperor Domitian, a later emperor Domitian, because lots of Roman emperors did not like philosophers, especially the Stoics, because they were, as we would put it today, uh, they had a habit of uh, speaking truth to power, and that never goes well with power. Um, so Epictetus was kicked out of Rome. He went to Nicopolis in western uh, Greece, reestablished his school, which became one of the most famous schools in the ancient world. The later emperor, Adrian, became a friend and, and, and started visiting often. So Epictetus was incredible because he went from being the lowest rank of, uh, of Roman society, a slave, to being one of the most famous and successful teachers in the entire ancient world. Hmm. And it's, I guess, I guess the philosophy itself, Stoicism, has influenced religion. Also, it's influenced, um, uh, I, I guess, certain types of therapy. Talk about that, because it, it really is. It almost seems like it's it's having a major revival right now. It is, and the funny thing is that uh, the original version of Stoicism kind of sort of dwindled uh, near the third or fourth century. You know, but with, with the end of the Roman Empire, essentially, like like many other uh, ancient Greek and Roman philosophies. But then it kind of stayed in the background. First of all, it influenced Christianity. Uh, a lot of the ideas that, uh, uh, from th- that, that we're familiar with from uh, Stoicism, actually, uh, that's because the early Christian writers took them on board and sort of you know changed them and, and, and adapted it to Christianity. But they're essentially the same ideas. So, for instance, 
I mentioned that, um, earlier the bicarbonate control. That sounds a lot, if you, if you uh, think about it, like the serenity prayer, mm. which is, uh, you know, the, the whole at the beginning of uh, 12-step organization meetings. And that's because the serenity prayer, in fact, is essentially the modern version, Christian version, of the Stoic economy of control. Uh, the early Christian um, uh, fathers and theologians were strongly influenced by Stoicism. Um, St. Augustine, for instance, even Paul, even St. Paul, uh, at some point, Paul, Paul knew Seneca's brother, and he talks in, and he writes about Stoicism in the letter to the Romans. Um, and then later on in the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, probably the most influential uh, Middle Age, uh, middle, uh, medieval philosopher, Christian philosopher, um, took a lot of the of the basic ideas of Stoicism on board. In fact, the manual Epictetus wrote actually one of uh, Epictetus' students. Epictetus did not write anything, but one of his students, Arian, brought down a bunch of his lectures. And there is a, a little compendium, a little manual uh, that um, by Epictetus that was put together by Arian. And that manual was actually used as a training manual in uh, in um, uh, medieval monasteries by Christian monks, hmm. uh, so throughout the Middle Ages. So then we get to modern times, and then, as you say, you mentioned modern therapy. So at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, psychotherapy sort of split into two major branches. On the one hand, we have what one might call the existential branch. That's basically Freudianism, Jung, and you know people like that, sort of the so-called deep psychology. The other branch is what I would call the logo uh, therapeutic branch. So these, these are uh, approaches to uh, psychotherapy that are very much based on, on reasoning and on, you know, figuring out uh, what it is that is happening to the, uh, to the patient in terms of, so using his, his rationality and, and, and approaching his problems or her problems that way. That branch was strongly influenced by uh, stoicism. In fact, a number of the early versions of things like logotherapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy, and cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, they imported a number of Stoic techniques because Stoicism was not just a philosophy. I mean, it was mostly a philosophy, but it also came with a number of techniques for how to deal with uh, day-to-day in, uh, problems. And, uh, and these techniques have been adapted, adopted first and then adapted by uh, a number of modern uh, psychotherapists. Just to give you an example, uh, Seneca wrote a wonderful book uh, called On Anger. And if you go uh, today still to the website of the American Psychological Association, and you check their, their section on anger management, it basically reads like Seneca. It's, it's, almost, really? you know, it's 80% of, of what Seneca wrote. Unbelievable. And, and then, too, a name that a lot of people have heard is Viktor Frankl, who was yeah. an Austrian psychiatrist captured by the Nazis, thrown into Auschwitz. Um, and then a lot of – and he, he, he was really, I think, deeply based in logos therapy, wasn't he? That's right. He, uh, in fact, the, the term logotherapy is, uh, is um, attached to what uh, uh, Viktor Frankl did after uh, World War II, and it was one of the early, early post-war versions of these cognitive behavioral therapies. And yes, uh, Frankl's approach is very, very similar uh, to uh, the Stoic approach in particular because it includes two uh, components. One is, again, some a version of the dichotomy of control. Uh, you, you know, you need to figure out what it is that you can uh, act on and what, what is, is, in fact, is outside of your control. And the other one is a strong orientation toward helping others. Uh, stoicism, uh, there, there is a number of misconceptions about stoicism, one of which is that it's about suppressing emotion, uh, emotions, and the other one is, you know, sort of like going through life with, like, like Mr. Spock from Star Trek. Um, and the other one, which is related, that, that you should be just... just uh, keep a stiff upper lip and, and deal with things, you know, endure things. 
those are distortions of stoicism, and, and Frankel uh, understood it very well, and Albert Ellis, uh, who is the originator of rational emotive behavior therapy, also understood it very well. Uh, it, it isn't about suppressing emotion. It's rather about reorienting your emotional spectrum. You want to get away from the disruptive, disruptive unhealthy emotions such as anger, fear, uh, hatred, and things like that, and instead nurture your positive emotions, uh, love and, and concern for other people and a sense of justice and a sense of joy uh, about, about the universe. That's powerful. Um, again, we're speaking with Massimo Pellucci, who is also um, he interesting background. He has an ev- a PhD in evolutionary biology, and also a PhD in philosophy, and is currently the KD Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. Uh, Massimo, give us an example, a taste of how um, how we could manage and, and do some of this kind of reorienting of our emotion using stoicism and, and I guess some example of where we need to manage our emotions more effectively in today's day and age? So part of it, the, the way this, I'll give you a personal example that I described in, in, in my book. It's just a, a small example, but it gives you a good idea, I think, of, of how the thing works. So one of the things that you do is to you, you practice a certain number of exercises and a certain, certain number of meditations. And uh, in fact, the last chapter of my book is, is, is a list uh, and a guide to some of these exercises. Now, these exercises are in part exercises in visualization. So, um, so this is you, you, you meditate from time to time about, you know, let's say that you are uh, about to embark in something that is problematic and potentially might not go well, like a job interview, for instance. Uh, then, then, or a date. Let's say you're on a first date. You're going on a first date. Then, uh, what you do is you engage in, in what the, the the Romans call a premeditatio malorum, which um, basically means you know thinking about the bad outcomes. And so you you close your eyes, and for a few minutes you imagine that scene in detail, and then you say, okay, what is the worst thing that can happen about this, and how I'm going to handle this. The point of this exercise is twofold. First of all, you become mentally prepared to deal with the worst possible scenario. The, the, one of the things that, it's, that human beings are really not good at is to respond on the spur of the moment to situations that you did not expect. So if instead you're mentally prepared, you say, okay, well, if this is going to go that way, here's, here's how I'm going to behave. This is what I'm going to say. The other one is that most of the times, not always, but most of the times, in fact, the worst scenario does not happen. And, and so that you prepare for the worst, but in fact, you're actually going to be, uh, you know, happy and, and, and relieved because the actual thing went, went better uh, than, than you might have uh, thought. So let me give you an example, a practical example. This, this happened actually when I was reading, sorry, when I was writing the book uh, last year, I was on sabbatical in, in Rome. And um, uh, one of the, my premeditatio malorum had always been, you know, so what if I lose something that isn't, that is, uh, you know, either annoying to lose or even important, um, like you know, an object that I care about, or uh, or you know, or, or some money or whatever it is. And so, occasionally, I do that sort of stuff. Okay, well, then I uh, one night I, I get out of my apartment, I get on the subway in Rome. I was about to meet my brother and his wife to go for dinner and a movie, and something awkward was happening. I was being pushed from the front from somebody, even though the subway was not really that crowded. It took me a fraction of a second to realize that that was be- I was being distracted and somebody else was lifting my my um, wallet from my mm. pocket. So I turned around and I caught I, I just in time to see the doors closing and the, the guy went off with with my wallet. And you know normally um, 
years ago, I would have been pissed off and I would have been really upset and that would have been, you know, ruined my entire evening. I would have thought it wasn't, first of all, I'm stupid. I, I'm from Rome. I should know these things. I should be more careful. And second, you know, now it's about, oh, the credit cards that I lost and the driver license and the money that was in there and so on and so forth. So normally that would have been, you know, the, the kind of reaction you would have. Because of my training, on the other hand, my mind immediately went to, okay, uh, is, this has happened. Now, is this under your, under your control? Can you actually do anything to remedy the situation right now? Can you go after the, 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 the thieves or can, can you get out of the subway and somehow find them? And the answer, of course, was no, I can't. Okay, well, then put it out of your mind. Next, what is under your control? Uh, well, to send a text message to my credit card companies and block the, the credit cards, which I did immediately. Uh, what else is under my control? Uh, well, to call the DMV and get a replacement license, which I did from the subway. Uh, even though I was in Italy, I called DMV in the United mm. States, and they said, yep, sure, we can send you that in a, in a couple of days. So the practical problems were solved, and I said, okay, well, how much did I lose? There were a couple of hundred dollars, let's say, in, in the wallet. Well, is this going to make an impact on my uh, you know, personal finances? No. It's, you know, it's too bad, but it, there's nothing I can do about it, and it's not gonna, I'm not going to worry about it. By the time I walked out of the subway, that was just five minutes later, to meet my brother, I was perfectly fine, serene. I greeted uh, my brother and his wife. We went to movies. We had a nice dinner. And he almost di didn't figure out that something happened. At some point, he was just saying, so what happened today? I said, oh, well, you know, I was in the subway and I lost my wallet. And <laughs> that is the power of this kind of practice, that you, you sort of, it's not a question of not caring, because, of course, you do care. You do about care. The thing right but but it's about okay yeah but, but what can i do about it what can i actually do about it the, the, the stoics thought that it is not a good idea when something bad happened to you uh to on top of that sort of again upset or, or or angry or anxious about it because it's like adding insult to injury already something bad happened to you why do you want to make it worse by reacting in a way that it's not going to be helpful and in fact it's just going to make you miserable yeah there is no point that is so. But of course, it takes practice. I mean, it's not something that can happen from one day to another. Yeah, right. Which is why, it, like, it seems to work really well. I mean, to, to parallel it with something like Buddhism, it's a practice. It's a, it, it, but but it, it does take time. But it does eventually become like you. Again, we are speaking with Massimo Pellucci, and we are going to take a break. Come back, continue discussing his book, "How to Be a Stoic: Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life." And really, how to manage a little bit better your emotion, how to uh, recognize where you have control and influence and where you don't, and how to turn your life um, and really empower yourself, it sounds like, with, um, with some, some, some more, I guess, insight, some more power. Up next, we'll continue the journey. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We are talking about Stoicism, an ancient uh, philosophy, uh, parallels in a way uh, Buddhism, but uh, I guess more from the West. Uh, our guest is Massimo Pellucci, and he is the author of the book, How to Be a Stoic, uh, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life. 
He also is a professor, um, currently the K.D. Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. Also has his own degree in in evolutionary biology as well as a degree in philosophy. Massimo, again, thank you for your time and being with us today. Absolutely. A pleasure. Talk to me about uh, another idea, I guess, stoic concept of universal causality and how we can uh, use yeah. that in our lives today. Yes, we can. Um, so the, the Stoics thought that in order – so the, the, the main point of Stoic philosophy, just like actually the main point of a lot of ancient philosophy, and uh, including Buddhism in the East, was to figure out how to live a good life, uh, meaning a life that it was worth living, the kind of life that you get to the end of it, you look back and you say, yeah, that, that was worth it, that was a good thing. Now, uh, the Stoics thought that in order to do that, you have to understand a couple of other things, what they called the physics – and what they call the logic. Now, the logic was uh, essentially the, a, a discipline that tells you how to reason well. So it was, it included what we today mean by logic in, as moderns, but also so in general, you know, good reasoning. So we, it would also include the, like cognitive science, you know, aware, uh, awareness of, of biases and things like that. And the reason was that because you can't, the idea was that you can't live a good life, figure out what a good life is if you don't reason correctly, if you don't reason well. The other bit that they studied, the other discipline that they studied was physics. But by physics, by that, by that term, they meant not just physics as we understand it today, but really the full range of natural sciences, metaphysics, and even theology. The idea was that in order to live a good life, you have to have some idea of how the world actually works. And that brings me to the universal causality. So the Stoics thought that, uh, uh, first of all, they, they were pantheists. They thought that God is the same thing as the universe. God is, is in many, inside the universe. He's, he's everywhere. So literally we're bits and pieces of God. Okay? And if we are, however, the universe, all the bits and pieces of the universe are, are connected by a universal web of causality. Things happen as a result of other things. And if you take that seriously, it means, of course, that you yourself are part, uh, a little part of this universal you know, web of causality. So whatever you do is caused by other things uh, and causes, in, in turn, other things to happen. So you, you're part of, of this organic universe, uh, and you do your part, essentially, in, in the doings of that universe. Now, the interesting thing is that the Stoics, particularly uh, Chrysippus, who was the third head of the, of the Stoa, the third head of the school of, of uh, Stoicism, uh, had these really interesting ideas about causality. They thought that human action, they, they didn't talk about free will. Free will is kind of a, a little bit more you know, later uh, concept, uh, basic, basically comes from Christian uh, medieval theology. But they did have a, a, a word that is actually used even today in modern psychology. It's volition. Uh, volition is the ability of human beings to make decisions, right? And so they thought, okay, well, where does that come from? How do, how do human beings make decisions? And um, Chrysippus came up with this wonderful uh, analogy that, is, uh, that, that I like to tell because he makes the point very clearly. He said, consider a cylinder, right, the, the solid geometrical figure. Now, if you have a cylinder in front of you and you push it, and then I ask you, you know, and the cylinder is going to roll, yeah. Uh, the, and then I ask you, well, what made the, the cylinder roll? Your first uh, you know, intuitive answer is going to be, well, that's because I pushed it. In other words, there was an external force, an external cause that started the cylinder moving. But, but Chrysippus said, yeah, but that's only part of the answer, isn't it? Because 
part of the reason the cylinder is rolling is because it is a cylinder. That is, it's the internal constitution of the cylinder. If instead of a cylinder it were a cube, for instance, it wouldn't roll. It would just bump. Mm. Uh, and if it were something else, it wouldn't you know, respond at all. So the reason the cylinder is, is rolling is both because of the application of an external force and because of the internal mechanism, the internal causality of the cylinder itself. And Chris Ippos thought that that's the way human volition works as well. That is, when we do things, uh, we do things for a combination of external and internal causes. Let's say uh, that last night at some point I, I got up from my couch and I went to the refrigerator and got a beer. Uh, now you could say, well, why, why did Massimo do that? Well, it's a combination of external and internal causes. For instance, I was thirsty and I had knowledge of the fact that there, there is a beer in my refrigerator and so on and so forth. So, so there's a series of things. Some of them are physical. Some of them come from outside. Some of them are psychological that come from the inside, and that's how the Stoics thought that the whole thing works. And a major point, a major objective of Stoic uh, philosophy, especially Stoic practice, was to improve your ability to make decisions. Uh, they used, the, as I said, the, the word translates in, as volition. The Greek word was prohairesis, and prohairesis was the idea, uh, the, the ability to make, uh, to arrive at, at right judgment, to to arrive at the good decisions about your life. Hmm. So a lot of Stoic training is about improving your ability to make right decisions. Give us, uh, we have about maybe a minute and a half left. What would you say, what's, what's one thing that we could all implement today or one technique that you've got that we could implement today that would help us make a, a bigger decision in our life, where we should go to school, how, you know, who we should marry. What's a process we could, we could use that might incorporate some of the things you've already taught us? Well, other than the dichotomy of control that I, that I talked earlier, I think the, the most powerful, one of the most powerful techniques that Stoics have available is the evening philosophical diary. So every night what I do is before going to bed, uh, I follow Seneca's advice, um, and I sit down at my desk uh, or on the couch, and I take a few minutes to review my day, and then I write down a few notes, a few comments on, on my own actions and what happened to me during the day. And I ask myself three questions, which are the questions that Seneca used to ask himself 2,000 years ago. First of all, what did I do, what did I do wrong? And the point of that is not to uh, indulge in sort of self-bashing or regrets or something like that. It's just to learn. If I did something wrong, I want to learn from it so that tomorrow I'm not going to do it again. Okay. The second question is, what did I do right? Uh, and the reason I'm asking myself that is because Stoicism is a very forgiving and especially self-forgiving philosophy. Again, you don't bash yourself. You don't say yourself, oh, bad Stoic or bad person or whatever it is. You just learn from it. And so when you did something right, it's okay for you to pat yourself on the back and say, hey, that was a good thing. And then the third question is perhaps the most crucial one, which is, what could I have done differently? Because a lot of situations in our lives are recurring ones. You know, we, we, we deal with very similar situations or variations of similar situations over and over and over. And the more we learn from it, the more we can ask ourselves, okay, well, that didn't go particularly well today, but it's going to happen again. When and if it happens again, how am I going to deal with it? What, what am I going to do different since the last time I, I, it didn't work very well? And I find this powerful. It, it creates a record of your own decisions and thought processes, and you can go back and reread it and, and, and meditate on it, and it does really make your life um, better. It make, makes you more efficient in making decisions. And one more thing that it does, as Seneca pointed out, it says that, you know, if you start doing that on a regular basis every night, then during the day, you will, in fact, discover that you, you pay much more attention to what you're doing because you know that at night you have to talk to somebody, your own conscience. Right. 
uh, to whom you can't lie. Yeah. <laughs> you can't hide anything from it. I love that, Massimo. That is such a – it's interesting because we, we, we see that practice being done a lot of times, you know, after, you know, your company does a new product release or whatever, continue, stop, start, what's working, what's not. But to actually think of it like you just did, we have to face our, our conscience every day and let the conscience kind of be the guide. Powerful, power stuff, powerful stuff. Massimo Pellucci is his name. The name of the book is How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Life, uh, to Live a Modern Life, and uh, Power. Isn't there power in in thought and wisdom, really, um, from all the ages? Uh, powerful stuff. Interesting. We're going to take a break, my friends. Continue the journey and continue giving the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. Up next, we'll have more empty news. Stick with us. As if uh, it wasn't difficult enough in Florida with Hurricane Irma passing through and, you know, leaving a major wake of disaster. Now there's reports coming out in our empty news segment that they may be the worst drivers in the United States again. Yeah, this is according to Smart Asset for the second year in a row. So it's not just this year, it's last year. Drivers in Florida have been ranked the worst in the entire country. (sighs) In their annual rankings of states with the worst drivers, Smart Asset claims Floridians live up to their reputation for being bad drivers. According to the rankings, Floridians Google traffic tickets more than any other state and have the second (laughs) lowest number of insured drivers in the country. To compile its ranking, Smart Asset used a number of drivers, DUI arrests, people killed, and Google Trends and ticket searches. Top 10, the top 10 states with the worst drivers? Any guesses? Well, I I think everybody thinks their state is in there. I think Utah should be in there. I think Utah should be in there. I think California should be in there. Oh, yeah. See, Utah, I had one of these days the other day where it seems like everybody and their mom is cutting you off. Yeah, what Just about everybody. their dad, too? Their dad, too. No, he's a good driver. Dads, dads cut people off all the time. <laughs> and then they then the kids, because they're like, don't make me pull over. By the way, if in case my parents are listening, that was no reflection on them. I meant mother and father in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Florida is number one. There's yep. also Mississippi, Oklahoma, New Jersey. Really? Delaware. I didn't think wow. anything happened yeah. in Delaware. Alabama, also unfortunate. Vermont, Tennessee, Texas, and Nevada. Wow. I thought for sure. See, everybody thinks their state, that you've got the worst drivers. Well, you don't. Apparently, Florida does. But we love you, Florida, and uh, you'll probably have a lot of uh, need for your driving. There goes Jeff right there. That was a hit and run. That was crazy. Oh, it was a Florida license plate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and a Delaware license plate. Weird. Imagine the odds. Well, we'll continue the journey with you folks, doing what we can to give you a leg up in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. This is the 
Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Uh, happy Patriot Day, folks. The day we observe the National Day of Service and Remembrance for those that were killed on September 11th. And our, again, it just goes back to those harrowing days. Those were some pretty intense days 16 years ago. Also, by the way, more uh, more stress continues from Hurricane Irma as it makes its way up today through uh, into Georgia and Alabama now. Are also going to be feeling the the impact and the effects of that, uh, that storm. Again, um, not necessarily the category five or four or three, really down to about 65 mile an hour winds in those storms are expected today through uh, 2 p.m., which 65 mile an hour winds, pretty big deal, but definitely down from the 160 mile an hour winds of the hurricane five as it was flying over the Caribbean. That was just close to the eye. Yeah. There were gusts, but... But 65 mile an hour, just stick your head out of your window. Yeah, I had someone tell me that over the weekend. I went, no, I'm not going to do that. That's insane. I'm driving. (laughs) See how that works for you. And it's still fun to watch the weather people do everything they can to stand up in these storms. It was great. One guy's like, you know those pressure washers you use to clean off your deck or clean off your driveway? It's like having one of those shot in your face. You just stand there. Yeah, and they're yeah. like, um, go inside. Yeah, you don't have to do it from you know right in the storm. Yeah, you can make it. You can do like a parking garage. Yeah, go out to go yeah. to a patio where you yeah. can still see it, but you're not. Are we just lazy? We'd be lazy weather people. Do they have to sign waivers, or do they just have really good insurance? Yeah, title waivers. <laughs> that was that, a really long that was a, gap. Well, there yeah. was a smart joke, so our audience. Not to say that our audience is not smart. Which is what you said. But you just think about it. You have to think about it for a minute. You don't think our audience is smart? No, you have to think about it for a minute. I think they're really smart. That's why they they knew not to even laugh. Hmm. And then one poor chump did, and then they all felt bad for him, so they all laughed. So you think it was a social pressure? (laughs) It was a sympathy laugh (laughs) for the one guy that didn't know that you don't laugh at that. That was just too highbrow of a joke. Hmm. Well, guy could dream. Today, by the way, we're going to be talking about mother guilt and how to stop it. You may have noticed if you are a mom or if you um, – I'm mom adjacent. Yeah, if, if you are near a mom. There's one in my house. It's, a lot of moms have a lot of guilt, just frustration that they can't do more, be more, have everything done, make their life, their child's life perfect. Why isn't there like father guilt? Well, because – Fathers are not guilty. Why would why would both of us need to go down? <laughs> I thought you meant like your mother taking you on a guilt trip. No, I don't. Well, I, moms are good at that too. Like, oh, is that you just, went to their is house? Sh- is that sharing their guilt? It might be. It might be used. Yeah, but yeah. It might be using guilt as a means of motivating, driving. Hmm. I mean, if you don't love me, if you want me to, if you want mom to just be home all weekend alone, then just go. Okay, you went to your spouse's family for Christmas last year, but you can go again. Just go. Yeah, go ahead. Have Fine. a great time. You know what? Sure. I there. used my body as the vessel to bring you to this earth, but <laughs> they didn't. But that's fine. I'll just sit home alone. Hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know if that's what we're talking about. Okay. I think we're more talking about how moms just – they just always think they can do more. See, my, my wife will say that. Then I, I'm kind of with the attitude like, yeah, hey, can't win them all. Yeah. But maybe you give up too easy. Maybe. Maybe you ought to keep trying. I don't know. That's why. That's the, I think moms know the reality is the guys aren't going to have that guilt hmm. as much. They just kind of keep moving. But shouldn't we? Oh, yeah. Okay. We could all – but remember, guilt is – in a way, it could be healthy because it motivates you to do something. Guilt means you could do something different. Hmm. But you don't want it to turn into shame. Shame is where you feel like you're just a loser. You're no good. You offer nothing. Why are you looking at me when you say that? I don't know. It was just about the chairs. I mean all you had to do this Sunday, Jeffrey, was get about 1,000 chairs set up (laughs) for a big conference. And you didn't do it. You didn't even do it. I didn't know I was supposed to do it. No. Nobody didn't. told me. But you know. But it, I still felt guilt. That's it. You felt Extreme guilt. Extreme guilt. And you probably shouldn't have felt the guilt. I could not look anybody in the eye as they were setting up the chairs. See? Or the eyes. Yeah. You should have let it go. It wasn't – you didn't know. It wasn't your fault. But you still, you know – Felt bad. You still today, to this day, Monday, feel bad, even though the chairs have been set up. They've watched the great conference and the chairs have been taken down. (laughs) Don't cry, pal. Look at it this way. You made $45 on your fat bet. $46. (laughs) Sixteen, really, because I got netted, the thirty dollars back. You got the thirty back, but yeah. but you got to look at it really that you made forty. You paid thirty. You made forty-five. Mm-hmm. You netted about two bucks a pound. That's two buckets of popcorn. Yeah, at you the could, movie theater. And what you ought to do, honestly, you could go eat some more popcorn, go gain back those eight, mm-hmm. then go make another fifteen by losing them again. <laughs> right. This could never stop. There we go. And you're already in your second. Uh, set of eight pounds you got to lose. This one's going to be more difficult. Yeah. The sequel is always tougher to pull off. This is where you may break even on your fat reduction. No, I don't. There's no breaking even. You either you either win the bet or you don't. So I stand to lose another thirty dollars. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I've got about three weeks. Three weeks to, to get back on track. Yeah, by the way, I have been eating a lot of popcorn. Actually, I talked to a friend um, who's really big into jazzercise, <laughs> so you could get back into jazzercise. I mean, I know you used hmm. to do it back in high school with the leg warmers and the yeah spandex. Mm-hmm. Good times. Yeah, good times had by all. So, um, boy, we've got a lot to cover. And uh, let's do this. Let's get to the headlines with Terry first. And then, uh, you know, I'm sure we, we're going to also visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Of course, we'll also do a hero story, but a lot to get done in just so short a time. Terry, what's going on around the country we should be paying attention to? Earlier this morning, President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump have observed a moment of silence at the White House, marking the moment when the first plane hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York on September 11th. 
2001. The Vice President Mike Pence observed the anniversary separately in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the United Airlines Flight 93 crashed. In his remarks, Trump also recalled the horror and anguish of that dark day and paid homage to the victims of the attack. We mourn them, we honor them, and we pledge never, ever to forget them, he said, adding that when America is united, no force can break us apart. Yeah. That's cool. Um, other observances of the Pentagon throughout the day as we remember this day. Hurricane Irma, now a tropical storm. Irma has crossed into Georgia. Millions in Florida and Georgia without power as they deal with the effects of the storm system. One story from over the weekend that caught my eye. A Miami woman was forced to deliver her own baby because paramedics could not reach her due oh, to the boy. hurricane. Yeah. According to the fire department official Eloy Garcia, a 911 dispatcher talked the woman through the delivery. We weren't able to respond, so she delivered the placenta. Also, dispatch told her how to tie it off. She is stable at home, is the statement from the 911 dispatcher. Yeah. Hmm. Tie that. Always tie that off. That's a big deal. Can you imagine going through that? I mean, Jeff, you just went through it in the lobby of the the hospital. So, you know, it's fresh for you. (laughs) But there were, like, medical personnel there, too. Yeah. Well, and janitors and support staff. Sure. Yeah. This, you this just, woman was in a car by herself in a hurricane. <laughs> yeah. And woman of the year. Oh, totally yeah. right there. That, make, that makes it easy. Woman of the year right there. Uh, other news. The United States has softened language in its draft for new sanctions on North Korea ahead of a U.N. Security Council vote today that risks a veto by Russia or China. The proposal for new sanctions follows Pyongyang's nuclear test on September 3rd. They dropped their hydrogen bomb or blew it up. It was oh probably boy. underground. American diplomats' initial draft sought an oil embargo, a halt on North Korea's textile exports, a financial and travel ban on leader Kim Jong-un directly. He can't leave the country. Really? He's not allowed to go or, anywhere or, or else. Other countries won't allow him in into their country. Can, I mean, I guess he could leave the country, fly for a few hours. Right. That was their original proposal. That's probably where China and Russia would be like, meh. Probably not. It's a little too much. The latest draft meant to earn the support of Russia and China does away with the restrictions on Kim and eases terms of the oil and gas bans. North Korea warns that North that America would pay a due price for its push for new sanctions. A due price. A due price. Yeah, I read that we're going to suffer the does that mean most Mount, pain the, ever. The price on Mountain Dew goes up. Is that what it is? Yeah, I think a yeah, due price. Oh, that if he messes with the Mountain Dew prices. Mm. Ruin weekends. Mm. And plus, he'll have a lot of like teenage kids after him. Absolutely. You don't want to upset that group. They've got <laughs> fidget spinners and skateboards. Right. Some of those fidget spinners are kind of sharp, too. Yeah, they've totally. weaponized them. So. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, Apple is holding its annual fall product launch on Tuesday. The Apple? The Apple. But this year's co- the company is expected to pull out all the stops because it's also publicly unveiling its new spaceship-like headquarters and because it's the 10th anniversary of its first iPhone. Really? So you got the 10th anniversary of the iPhone, a brand new spaceship headquarters. Yeah, they've got it all going on Lots now. of stuff happening. Uh, the presentation will be in the, uh, it's called Apple Park. Oh, I it's love Apple Park a la mode. Steve Jobs Theater will be where the announcement is made. Cool, yeah. Um, the marquee product is widely rumored to be the iPhone X. Is that what they're hmm. calling it? So right now, the current phone is the 7S. Yeah. No, it's the 7. They're going to skip the 7S, go directly to 8. So they're going to put out an iPhone 8 and an iPhone 8S, and then they're going to put out a special iPhone 
X what for about, the 10th anniversary. What happened to 7S? There was no 7S. 7S is not you can't happening. skip that. They just but is it, it. it sounds like X is actually means 10. <laughs> yes. So am I supposed to wait to get the 10 or do I go with the 8? They're putting out all three. I know. I hate that. The problem is the X will be $1,000. Huh? Is what they're saying. So the they want you to one thousand. They want you to get into get into a contract, start paying for one, and then have it immediately be obsolete. That's usually their model. Yeah. So you, we make it obsolete. <laughs> so you have your phone now. You can choose from the eight, or the bigger would be the eight S. Yeah. And then, if you really want to spend, you'll get the iPhone X. What What if you don't want to spend? You can just get an eight. Or you can go get a you know Samsung or something. But what if you suffer extreme fear of missing out? Well, then that's that's what they're causing is that the people are going to look at it like, ah, oh, but the other phone's going to have all the Must new. Stay up with friends. So it says Apple will also apparently unveil a uh, let's see here a new iPhone eight, iPhone eight plus, Apple Watch with wireless capabilities. So they'll have a little bit of internet connectivity separate from your phone. So your watch that you're wearing right now, yeah. Matt, is tethered to your phone. Yes. They're going to make it so the watch doesn't need your phone to operate. That tether, is that what I tripped on earlier yeah. this morning? Mm-hmm. It's, Man, it's, it's it wild, always gets wrapped around system. your leg. I'm sorry. They're also uh, an upgraded Apple TV and a new uh, software for all the devices with customized emoji. I know you're looking forward to that. Also, face or facial recognition will be on some of the new phones. Do you know what they really need? They need a new a dongle. They need a new dongle port. They have a lot of dongles. Hmm. Oh, they could have that one as the the headphone jack. They could yeah. bring that back. What they need is because yeah, they haven't changed their their dongle port for ever, for what a year, right? So if they if they could redo another kind of way to transfer everything to your phone and to charge it, they not only could make more money, but we would get the blessing of buying another. accessory that everyone has to have. So you know how we mentioned earlier how I basically earned two buckets of popcorn on this diet bet game? Because you've lost so much weight. So if I forego buying the Apple X Mm -hmm. or the iPhone X, I could have 125 buckets of popcorn. Well, is that is, is this how you're going to evaluate all of your purchases? And a hundred, it's really two hundred fifty because the large version of the popcorn comes with a free refill. So two hundred fifty buckets of popcorn I could have. Wow, you really like your popcorn. That's like two decades worth of popcorn. You know what else you would have? You could just put a thousand dollars in the bank. Right. I mean, it's not popcorn. No, but. It's good. There's plenty of other options, but people tend to want to spend on what is seen as the best. And yeah. more more so they have something to show people, go, hey, look what I got. Look what I got. And then the whole room stops because everyone else was smart and didn't spend 1000 bucks on a phone. Yeah. What are you going to do? They're making me mad. You're not going to spend 1000 bucks on a phone? Now? No. Your kid's going to want you to spend 1000 bucks on yeah, a phone. Yeah, but now. you know what? <laughs> He'll have to deal with it. He'll have to deal with it. I just, I'm not doing it anymore. Not buying any more phones. I'm really? actually, I'm finding that there's a lot of joy not having any, you know, phone. I'm, I'm kind of cutting back. I only use it occasionally. Okay, when are you going to be finished sending that text message? Five more minutes. All right. Hey, let's uh, let's do this. Let's take, um, let, let's, Jeff, I want to talk about this stolen scuba, school bus. 
There was, so there's a, stole, a stolen school bus that prompts a chase through two counties, and then somebody tosses the gun out the window. Yeah. Well, there we go. It's crazy town. It's crazy town. <laughs> and so, it, by the way, not it, this was in Birmingham, Alabama, so, not in Florida. Right. And as we talked earlier on the program, not a lot of great things happening right now in Alabama. Yeah. So. Or just one really bad thing happening. Yeah, Irma. So uh, this was last week. Law enforcement officers from multiple agencies chased a stolen school bus. Brandon Peckinpah, 24, of Kentucky. Brandon Peckinpah! Is charged with attempting to elude law enforcement, reckless endangerment, and resisting arrest. Peckinpah told authorities his friends left him and he needed a ride. That makes sense, oh, right? Oh, boy. So he just borrowed a bus? Well, it all began about 1 a.m. when authorities say the bus was stolen from the home of a bus driver. Okay, so you would think that at 1 o'clock in the morning, a, a bus driver would probably be the worst option for a getaway car. Yeah, bus, yeah. But ex- except, you know, they're easily accessible. You just pull on the door. The thing, the thing is, though, what students are going to be on a bus at one in the morning? So there's something shady about a bus driving around at one o'clock. No, he was just he was parked at home. He had the bus at home ready to go do his run in the morning. His his <laughs> so, student run. So uh, sheriff's office spokesperson said the bus was taken during an early morning spate of burglaries. Yeah. In the area, no children were on board the bus at Thank the time. Heavens. I, again, like I said, why would they be? <laughs> uh, the driver led law enforcement through several counties before heading onto I-459 northbound. The driver hit a state trooper vehicle and oh. attempted to hit several other law enforcement oh. vehicles involved in the pursuit. He's in trouble. The school bus was ultimately stopped. Officers said the driver threw a handgun out of the school bus window. He was taken into custody without incident. Brandon Peckinpah busted. That's like a that's a cops episode right there. Well, thank heavens they were on it, and nobody was hurt. Well, the cars were. The cars were not people. No people, and thank heavens no children were involved. Well. As if it wasn't bad enough in Alabama, now Irma's passing through. So ah, at least Brandon Peckinpah will be in the safe and secure jail system right there in Birmingham. Birmingham. Good stuff, folks. Straight ahead, we're going to talk about how to alleviate or eliminate mother guilt, how to stop it. Straight ahead right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking uh, with Nicole Cunningham, who is a master executive coach with 15 years of coaching and consulting experience. Nicole has dedicated her career to assisting companies and individuals and families in Australia, Malaysia, UK, Singapore, and now here in America. Um, She is called the People Whisperer and has an incomparable understanding of all aspects of human nature. You can find out more about her practice and her organization, Clarity Point Coaching, um, if you just go to claritypointcoaching.com. Nicole, thanks for being with us. No worries at all. So talk to me about uh, uh, this article. Kim um, is on the show with us normally too, and you work with Kim. Kim is a uh, 
Kim wrote an article on mother guilt. Yeah. And yeah. we were trying to understand, like, because the dads don't seem to experience this same kind of guilt as, or as much of it as the moms do. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Or maybe yeah. they do, but maybe we, just we just look at it, it as, as something different. Yeah. 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 So I want to talk about what guilt is caused by, and then obviously we've got to talk about what kind of guilt there is, right? right? right. So guilt can be an, an issue of comparison. It can be, well, what if I did this better? If I just stayed up later and did the dishes, or if mm. I did some more washing, or what if I forced her to do some more piano practice? She would have done it better yeah. in a recital, you know? It's this completely insatiable you know thing that need that to compare need to compare and and this desire that you know what if yeah. i just do better if i work harder if i do more 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 so it's completely an insatiable thing and i think that's where it becomes so damaging for women across the board because women have a history of comparing themselves about their appearance and yeah. their performance way before they become mothers and let's face it the minute we become mothers there's more things to fail at oh <laughs> right? exactly and cuz there's always someone better and so that's interesting. Maybe it's if we're always comparing, then we feel guilt. If we're never comparing, you don't maybe have as much yeah, adjusting. That, that's right. And so we call this fear of failure. It's mm. like if I don't do this and this and this, I'm not going to be enough. Right. And that that core fear is actually what drives this whole guilt bandwagon, right? Is that if I'm not good enough at this, then I failed. Yeah. Right. And so there's so many ways that women feel like they're failing every single day, whether it got to, has to do with housework or income or, you know, looking like the Joneses, you know, and having four children perfectly ready for school on time. You know, Ugh. there's just so much. So much stress. Right. It is. It's a lot of stress. But unfortunately, it's when that stress becomes an identity issue that we see we have a guilt crisis. Totally. Right. Because if women do have their children arrive late to school, well, you know what? They've failed. They yeah. failed as a mother. What kind of, well, what kind of mother does that? Yeah. Well, a, a real mother, actually. <laughs> Every human being on earth. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, we have this false sense of who we are. Yeah. And, and this is what we're trying to really address in this article this week on KSL is to say, if you're continuing to place your value on these things outside of yourself, you're not valuing yourself as a mother on an intrinsic so level. So true. Right? True, true value as a mother is how much you love your children. Yeah. Right, not even how much they love you back. Right, no, no, right? just just but what just, you're putting in, the yeah. love. And and so we've got to start measuring intention instead of expectation and outcome. Yeah, it's right? interesting because we you would think as humans we would be better at always judging our intention as good, mm. but we tend to actually beat up our intention, like obviously not good enough. Yeah, and I think this is because we live outside of ourselves this external reality of comparison. Mm. And so I really think that's the biggest biggest thing is that we've got to make a decision to stop looking left and right and to stay in your own little four worlds and say, I did my best today and my best is always good enough. Right. And you know what? That's a great piece of parenting advice as well. That's what we should be telling our kids, right? Yeah. Is that your best is always good enough. And so sometimes your best is, you know what? I'm not feeling well today. I'm going to hang out at home and... You know, put on Netflix, and that's the and we're going to get pizza for takeout, and that's me doing my best as a mother. It doesn't quantify me, yeah, as failing or not being good enough as a mother. Do we end up swinging? I guess both different ways. So we we swing too far where we're not good enough. Do we ever um, just get to the point that we just don't care? Like, okay, I can't do it. I can't do it all. Yeah, and then we give up on that end. Yeah, and most of the time, that's when the guilt turns into resentment, and it's that martyr complex. Mm-hmm. Nobody helps me. Have yeah. you heard that? Right? Oh yeah. yeah. Mum on a Saturday morning is banging pots and pans and slamming cupboard doors and you know throwing laundry down the stairs because yeah. she's had it. 
it. With nobody helps me, well, let's look at why. Right. Okay? Because we and, – and this is where I want to spend some time. How do we get to a point of guilt, right? Yeah. Guilt is because we don't have boundaries, right? Because if we actually have boundaries, we say yes and no appropriately, we don't overgive – then we don't have to become that angry martyr. Yeah, we don't need. Yeah, we don't have to feel angry that no one else is serving us because we. I guess we would. We'd explain more what we need. We do. We wouldn't do things we don't feel are important. Yeah. We would know what important is. Yeah, and what you've said is so accurate that we that most women swing the poles. Yeah, from being the doormat, you know, yes, I'll do it. Yes, 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 because they have no boundaries. Mm-hmm. To then completely flipping the lid on the other side, yeah. which is the martyr complex of you know what, I'm not cooking dinner this week. You guys fend for yourselves. You right, know? exactly. And and both of them are, are coming from that same place of fear that I'm not good enough. No matter what I do, it's never good enough. How much of that have we heard? Oh right? yeah, from totally. moms. And, and I, you know, I hear it come out of my mouth sometimes, right? So we've got to look at this and say, well, to prevent that, what do we do? Right. And the first thing is we've actually got to implement some healthy boundaries. What am I actually okay with and not okay with? Yeah. Right? I'm not okay with my kids putting their socks next to the basket because it doesn't take any more effort to put it in the basket. Right. Just put it in the basket. So I make a decision to either flip my lid and yell at them. Or do it for them, which is me riding both poles or learning to ask lovingly, hey, girls, just a reminder, it goes in the bath, in the basket. Otherwise, it doesn't go into the, into the washing. Yeah. Right? And we set those boundaries for ourselves every single day. Right? And, and that's the prevention, I think. And I guess is that – part of it is it, we almost think it's more efficient to just do it for them, put them in. I'm just going to put them in. just going to put them in. But that very thought is – Debilitating you. It is. It's, it's hurting you. Yeah, and it also creates this enabling for, mm-hmm. for for you know. And then one day they're an entitled teen, and we go, "How did we get here?" Yeah. Actually, we we've been building that for all of this time, right? Because if I am actually the socks are about a boundary issue for me, not about the socks. Right. It's if you love me and respect me, you'll help me. Okay, that's actually the boundary that I'm setting for myself because I love myself just as much as I love you. Right. And I don't want to turn into that cranky martyr. <laughs> right. No. Um, you, you can't. I mean, because then all of a sudden you realize, look what's happening to me, which I think actually makes us more guilty. Mm, absolutely. Because right? now I'm a mess. Yeah. So I'm sure there's women listening to this going, oh, that's me. That's totally my behavior. Yeah. You know, and so we want we want to get this message across this week through this article and being on the show to say, you can actually change this right now by making some healthy boundaries for yourself. How do you do that? How do you go about making the – knowing what – is the boundary and, and what you doesn't need to be a boundary. So we either do things out of love motivation or fear motivation. And most of our fear motivation is people pleasing, mm-hmm. which is that whole guilt cycle, which yeah. is I'm going to do it because, you know, if I don't do it, I'm a bad mother. Right. Right. Or I've got to say yes to making cakes for the bake sale, even though it's the last thing I want to do and I don't have time this week. But that's what good mums do. Yeah. Right. That's an unhealthy boundary. So a loving boundary is is a love motivated decision to go, actually, you know what? I love myself enough to not put myself under that pressure this week. So I'm going to not do the bake sale. But next time it comes around, I will. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's it's all about self-regulation. And this is ironic because this is what we're trying to teach our children. That's exactly <laughs> right? right. And as particularly as parents of young children with toddlers, I mean, it's all about self-regulation. 
a lot of the time we've actually got to model this in order for it to be effective. Mm-hmm. You know, do as we do instead of what it is that we say. And maybe it's our weakness. I mean, maybe that's always been our weakness, which is why it's what makes us angry about how our, we see our kids turning out is it's our weakness. Absolutely. I mean, no better way than to be triggered to see your behavior on the outside. Mm-hmm. Right? Totally. I often say my daughter is the spit out of my mouth and it's the most terrifying thing in the world. Not right? amazing. Yeah. Because it literally is. I'm looking in the face of all of the stuff that I still have to do. So this is isn't about perfection, right? right? For all the mums listening going, gosh, I'm screwing it out. It's not at all. This is about loving yourself enough to say yes and to say no according to love motivation instead of fear motivation, which stops this people-pleasing martyr complex of mm. mother guilt. That's powerful stuff. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Nicole Cunningham from uh, ClarityPointCoaching.com. You're going to want to go check out their website. They have a ton of great tools, resources there as well, uh, as well as some evaluations, some tests you can take that will help uh, guide you down the road of fear and love as well. We will continue the journey, Mother Guilt, and how to stop it up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. We're talking with Nicole Cunningham, who's a master executive coach with 15 plus years of coaching and consulting experience. And uh, you can go check out our website, claritypointcoaching.com. Also, we're talking about the article, Do You Have Mother Guilt? And I don't, but I'm finding out apparently I do. Yeah, because it's interesting. guilt is about this, this need to compare. Yeah. And if you, it's, so it's a lot of this is about, and the fear, of, and the you fear, believe you're not enough. Yeah, and then it's always yeah. about people. So, what, like, I guess when we get really afraid, we become pleasers, and then when we're pleasers, we don't have boundaries, and we just end up doing everything but maybe what's important to us. Yeah, and core to us. Yeah. So let's talk about that whole balance between giving and receiving. Yeah. Right, because. Let's face it, when we flip our lid as parents, whether it be in anger or whether it be in disconnection, because they're the two poles that we swing from, we were just talking about that, right? That happens when our bucket's empty. Mm -hmm. So how guilty do women feel for going and having an exercise program or for going out and having a lunch with the girls or for taking themselves out to a movie? Incredibly. You know, I'm sure that there'd be a fascinating statistic about all the women that deprive themselves of those everyday things. But if they actually just gave themselves permission through a boundary, which is, hey, done everything else for everyone else this week, I'm taking myself to a movie. Or I'm going to go and get mo- yeah. a pedicure. Or, yeah. you know what, I'm, right. I'm sleeping in. If that bucket isn't full, we can't give to others. And I tell you, every mother knows that. Oh, yeah. But we don't But everyone it real well, violates it, right? right? Because we have this inbuilt thing that we don't balance giving and receiving. Mm-hmm. And you almost look at it and then the other thing that seems harsh is women tend to judge women harsh. Yeah. That's a, it's, so, cruel, so, it's cruel reality. Yeah. Right? So it almost seems like then you see the woman that does – no matter what, she's exercising every day. She's doing it her way. She takes that bike ride or she goes to the movies and then you see other women beating them up for that. Yeah. And, yeah. like, and social media is such a great tool oh, for that, isn't it? Totally. It's become such a toxic thing. Yeah. Right? So How do we stop that? Like how do we not judge another's, you know, use of their boundaries? 
Well, again, if we have boundaries of our own, we don't need to look over the fence. All right. That's the whole point of this is that if we can actually stabilize ourselves, our own family unit, and say, right, I'm making the decisions that are best for us. What goes on outside of this, really, it, it, I don't have control over it. It's, it should be of little interest to me mm-hmm. because my job to, as the mother and that maternal leader in this home is to make sure everybody is balanced and fulfilled and happy and content yeah. and healthy, including me, by the way, right? Right. So this is where you don't place yourself necessarily as more important, but just as important. Hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You don't have to – It's yeah, just – Equal to absolutely everyone else, and and the irony in this, which I think is so funny from a from a father's perspective and from a spouse, is that everybody loves you as the mother, and wants to love all over you. Yeah, exactly, and actually wants to help. But the guilt complex about how I should be mm-hmm. right, and that perfectionism, and that that really unsatiable drive that is guilt, stops us from saying, "Hey, love, right? Could you just put the kids to bed tonight? I, I'm feeling a little off the, you know, mm-hmm. under yeah. the weather." Yeah. Right, or to say to the teenage kids, "I'd really love you to choose a meal this week that you're going to take complete ownership of, and whether it's pancakes or you know cheese on toast, it doesn't matter. Anything, anything, because kids want to be included and they want to show up for you right. as their mother. Because I mean, what do we all feel? None of us can ever show our mothers enough love and mm-hmm. gratitude for everything they've done to us. Right, right. right. And so we've got to give them opportunities within that workflow of life, work balance, and within the home to actually show up for you. Yeah. So you've got to let them help you. Plus, it's it's in their best interest to learn all of these things too. Instead yeah. of you being the only one in the house that knows how to do it. Yeah. Let them learn this. Yeah. So my job is to make sure my children, my girls, don't have mother guilt. Yeah. If I had boys, it's to make sure that his wife doesn't have mother guilt. That's right. That's right. right. So the parenting I do now is going to have traction, right? Yeah, that's huge. So balance this giving and receiving and lovingly ask for your needs to be met. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that's it is you've got to ask and lovingly is is great. Sometimes just, I mean, we don't know how to do that either. Mm. But part of it is I almost don't, I almost worry more just ask. Mm. Just ask. Yeah. Like let the loving come whether it comes or not. Yeah. Right? But just at least ask. Yeah. And yeah. don't don't make us mind read. Don't make us try to figure <laughs> it out. A, that's such a critical piece, yeah. right? Because women who are in guilt or who are the, then feel mistreated and are in that anger and resentment, they yeah. shut down. Right. Exactly. So that's such a critical point, oh, isn't it? Yeah. So we've got to keep that dialogue open. Balance the giving and receiving. Take stock on a Sunday night. Right. This is the week ahead for all of the people in our family. Right. Mm. I always think of it that I'm kind of the big controller of the, the train station. Right. Yeah. And I've got all these trains on their tracks so that I'm going to have go off this week. Right. But guess what? In order for me to maintain control of and, and you know, be functional and loving in all these trains being on the tracks, I've actually got to make sure that, that I've got what I need. Yeah. So what is needed for me to keep all these things going this week? That visual helps me because I don't then forget myself. That's huge, isn't it? You know? What's the one thing, anything else that would be like a, kind of an immediate tool or, or paradigm we could have to help us manage the mom guilt? Make a decision that your best is always good enough and that your love is always enough so that you're not devaluing yourself through your performance, through your housework, yeah. or through anything else that you're trying to obtain your value because you are enough. You're enough. And enough is enough. Yeah. Ah, and breathe. <laughs> Nicole Cunningham's her name. Go check out her website, claritypointcoaching.com, filled with wonderful resources, and uh, you can get access to all of their articles. 
three or so, 400 articles, I know, on that site. Wonderful tool. Nicole, again, is a master executive coach with 15-plus years' experience. And you can actually work with her or Kim. Uh, if you go to the site, they can, they can uh, actually get you access to uh, be able to talk to them as well. We'll continue the journey, folks. BYU Sports Nation is straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Yes, folks, it's time to uh, now go to our healing team uh, from BYU Sports Nation. Spencer and Jerem here to help us heal from the BYU-Utah game. Hello, gentlemen. I hate that we have to be introduced like that. I know. (laughs) But it is what it is on Monday. You know what? After the game, we healed up somewhat. Did you? We did. Did you guys go eat dinner? Right. Yes. What? Brian Logan, David Nixon, Spencer, and I. Oh, what a went party! Went to a local establishment and hung out until an unnamed time. <laughs> it's the latest I have hung out. It's in a long time. In a very me. long time. Isn't it funny? It's uh, uh, Terry's in-laws didn't get home till like four thirty. Wow! After that game, and they too went we to that late. Yeah. See, we were late. pretty close. Yeah. What is the deal, you guys? I mean, it's – I don't know. They had a chance even at the end. It's pretty crazy that BYU had a chance in that game. The BYU defense played outstanding. Yeah, they did. The, the last two seasons, the BYU defense has allowed 20 and 19 points and lost. Mm. BYU has lost. Boy. Although in this one, BYU's turnovers really cost them. What, what was the most surprising thing for you to as – you know? BYU had a – the ball a, chance a chance late in the fourth quarter to win the to win not just tie win the game win that, the game that should have been thirty five to thirteen oh. but the BYU defense played well yeah they did they they forced four field goal attempts well, Utah had eleven penalties too so I mean it just it's a weird ugly game do you had an opportunity um is there so I mean I guess there's always tomorrow but then you're looking at Wisconsin. That's the thing. Uh, that's the thing about being an independent and having scheduling hubris. Yes. yes Which is, we, we'll play. You know, Tom almost said, we'll play anyone, anytime, anywhere. We so talked about this yeah. all summer long. Whenever we would bring up the schedule, yeah. we would discuss, hey, that's BYU's mantra. And listen, this can backfire sometimes because you play good teams. Yeah. Totally. And, and that's the interesting thing that's going on right now. So there's a lot of evaluation, obviously, of what's gone on through three games. You start to kind of see what you are, right? But LSU and Utah, those are top 25 teams, mm-hmm. okay? And then you play another top 10 team now in Wisconsin. You're walking into the weight room, and you're throwing on more weight on the bar than you probably can handle, especially in this part. Obviously, the BYU offense, not where it needs to be. There was some silver lining. BYU feels like it found its running back, says Kalani's talk. We'll tell you who that is. Okay. Coming up on the show. Yeah, and the defense has been consistently good, so. That's great. Yeah, so there is, you know what, we are going to discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly. See, well, who better to to do it? We're hoping to get Clint Eastwood on the phone. We're not sure we're going to get him for the show today. But we will discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly. Go ahead. (laughs) Make my day. 
Wow. That was <laughs> oh, really good. Oh, apparently he's on the phone right now. Is he on the phone right now? Ready? He's in the studio. Yeah, he just called. Yeah, that, we just picked him up right there. So if uh, so, one of you has to be the good, one of you has to be the bad. Who's the ugly? Uh, uh, which which you, pleading? You know. Oh oh yeah yeah. <laughs> okay, I get yeah, it. Oh, no you, one you person. You know. You know. You know. Yeah. No, I know. You know I know. Who you are. No. I know, and I know. Yeah, I know who he is. Yes. It's kind of scary. So uh, okay, what do you, what do you think? Let's let's I'll let because you guys are going to be covering BYU, you know, up and down, inside and out. What do you think about kind of the big um, the big debut of all of the the NFL? I mean, it's interesting. I I don't know. I'm not as interested in the NFL this year for some reason. I don't know why. Fantasy football has changed everything for me in my interest level of the National Football League. Positively or negatively? Positively. Mm. So it's just pretty much more about fantasy football than even the game itself. Well, seemingly meaningless games take on new context when you Mm. have – Let's say a running back playing for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Let's say. I would never watch the Jacksonville Jaguars. But now that I drafted their number one running back, Leonard Fournette. You've got to, yeah. I care about what so that's a he smart, does. That's a smart move. And for some reason we feel like, oh, I, I'm super smart because I drafted him and nobody else did. <laughs> And if we win our league, it's like this badge of honor. Yeah. So it's good. Know. So it's good. So you you have a renewed interest in the NFL to watch every game, even games you wouldn't normally well, watch. Yeah, and I like to win meals from my buddies. You know. Mm-hmm. Like so, there must be wagering. Of what? Some, huh? <laughs> meals. Oh, like More, me, like. See, here's here's the thing with Mormons and betting. If it's money, it's discouraged. Yeah. If it's Meals. anything else, it's fine. Go for Every it. Game. Absolutely. <laughs> Meals. That's yes. right. Nothing wrong with that. Like the exchange of goods. Did, did goods. It, when, yeah. when you guys <laughs> when you guys went out to dinner after the Utah game, were, was that a payment of bet? Was that, I mean, not a bet. No, wager? no, but no, okay. but thanks to David Nixon for uh, for dinner slash breakfast? Question mark. Yeah, David's got the moo. Let David pay. David does have the move. David is a – he's an NFL alumnus. Yeah. He's, he pro, I bet you he makes more from his NFL – Pension? Pay, pension than I make. <laughs> totally. When but we I, left – But we I'm left, so happy to be here. I really am. Yeah, when we left I on make Saturday that night, Brian Logan, this is a direct quote, David better buy me dinner. He got that NFL money. <laughs> oh, did he say that? <laughs> Brian Logan still trying Brian's to get a Brian, free man. meal. <laughs> free meal. Hey, anything else on the show? What else are you guys ESPN's covering? Yes, Trevor Manich. Yeah, his assessment of oh, cool. What's going on in Provo? Yeah, what's What's the impact of what happened to BYU on Saturday night? And and what about Wisconsin? Also, yeah. the thing, the difference in the game that no one is discussing. Hmm. We will, except for us. We will discuss. I can't believe that it hasn't been. I really can't believe that people are not talking more about this. I thought that most everything was equal except for this. Really? I'll tell you yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Does it involve cougarettes? No. Uh, no. Okay. Okay. No. Just no, checking. There's an advantage for BYU there. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Just that's checking. That's not close. No, okay, good. All right, guys. Well, that sounds like a great show. By the way, straight ahead, you've only got five minutes till you can just devour the great therapy that comes from Spencer Linton and Jerem Jordan. They will. They'll take you you know, off of cloud one and move you to cloud nine. Hmm. That's what they're good for. That's 
That's skipping eight clouds. I know. It's a major cloud skippage. And uh, if, if you've ever asked, hey, what are Spencer and Jerem good for? If, like, no, I've never heard that question. But if somebody asked that, <laughs> this is what they're good for. They're cloud lifters. They take people to a higher cloud. Wow. What an endorsement. Seriously. I mean, and clouds are really close to heaven. So, oh, I like, I like what you did there. Yeah. I really like to look at it that way. Speaking of uh, getting to heaven, this one lady, a suspected shoplifter, slips the handcuffs, takes a police vehicle on a wild 100-mile-an-hour ride. The whole thing caught, by the way, on, I guess, the video from the car. Sheesh. Yeah, not good. Uh, this all – the shoplifter led police in Texas on a dangerous high-speed authority chase. Authorities say Tasha Sponsler, 33, reached speeds of 100 miles an hour while attempting to flee the officers. She apparently had been detained for stealing stuff from the Ulta, Ulta Beauty Store in Lufkin. It's pricey stuff. She then climbed through the 12-inch window partition into the driver's seat, sped off. Always shut that little window. Yeah. Shut the little window. Sounds like Sponsler needs a sponsor. Yeah. It's a very, very, very good point. And uh, let's get to our hero story. The, and again, another story that comes from Hurricane Kindness. In a true show of the Florida Keys motto, One Human Family, Marathon resident Chris McCarthy left the keys to an Oldsmobile inside it Friday for anyone who might not have a way out of the island. Off the island. If anyone needs a vehicle to flee the keys, there is a beat up old Oldsmobile on 72nd Street, one of the first houses on the left. Keys are in it. Take it and save yourself, he wrote on a Facebook page. I figured it was a no brainer, McCarthy said, adding that within an hour, someone had taken him up on the offer. The car, a 1991 Cutlass Supreme Island Beater, they called it, belonging to his girlfriend, was left behind as he drove a new van belonging to a local cab company to safety in Georgia. But even if it were a Mercedes, McCarthy says he would have left it behind because it could help save someone's life. This storm is absolutely terrifying, he said. From near and far, Keys uh, locals, local members that live in the Keys, have been turning into online groups for everything from updates, tips, and information to the whereabouts of each other. Strangers have bonded together, sharing photos of, uh, of life and uh, honestly, folks, that's what it's all about. And that's why we do the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back again tomorrow. Until then, take care.